thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Most people are too busy bitching about their own adversity to see the bigger picture. Adversity is like a seed gifted to you. What you do with it determines the richness of your experiences. This is the guidance of Peter Sage. He speaks of his own personal setbacks and his view of the, quote, victim mentality on this week's episode. Sage has flourished amid some of his life's biggest physical and professional challenges. Hear him speak candidly about his time incarcerated and how it only reinforced the resilient personality traits you'd expect to find in this incredibly motivating figure. This is episode 268. Power Athlete Nation, welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. 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 So as we know, not only is this podcast dedicated to battle the bullshit, but it's also about finding the world's most interesting people. Not only this podcast is extremely selfish because it allows us to connect with some of the coolest people, but also allows our listeners to get a little uh, snapshot into what happens on a daily basis here at Power Athletes. So we were fortunate enough to have two visitors today who got to come in and lift some weights with us and also flip the boar up the hill here in Texas. And uh, oddly enough, they're two world famous people and one of them uh, comes all the way from the UK. So uh, without further ado, Peter, you tell us a little something about yourself and uh, let the listeners uh, clue in so we can get on this and then we'll let Doc Parsley jump in. Thanks. Well, uh, yes, I, yeah, uh, generally speaking, yeah, nothing remarkable in terms of, you know, I dropped out of high school, 16, you know, I've got no formal qualifications, but always had a passion for wanting to understand yeah, what, what really makes the world work because it's not certificates on the wall. You know, it's what makes us get up in the morning excited or not excited, what makes us relate to people, what, you know, what's the real stuff that's life made of. So human behavior and personal growth really became a, a passion of mine from an early age. And, you know, I'm 46 today, so kind of 30 years in, in personal growth and development. Spent probably a decade and a half with uh, people like Tony Robbins, you know, uh, working alongside. And um, uh, really just, as I say, bringing that now to a level of awareness where people can make a difference in their lives by understanding stuff that we very rarely talk about. So that's, that's kind of my, my passion right now. So what are people trying to avoid? You said people rarely talk about, but uh, it seems like in today's market, uh, everybody wants to share everything. I mean, I've never, I, I always imagined in an internet age, people would be much guarded. And it seems to be the exact opposite, where now through the internet, we've allowed people this uh, vehicle or really this platform for them to share the world's most like darkest secrets. And people do it readily uh, on the internet, which I, I firmly believe in person, very few people would ever share these things. Yeah, I think one thing to remember is that, you know, the internet is also the, the biggest source of disinformation in human history. <laughs> yeah. you know? And here from- So you find that too. Yeah, we find that all the time. Yeah, shocker, right? Uh, but. What it does, it allows a platform for people to project what they perceive other people would want to know, and there's, there's still rarely a level of authenticity there that's really uh, either you know, self-actualized in knowing what's driving that sharing, or it's manipulative in some way. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's like Facebook. Facebook isn't the life you have, it's the life you want everybody else to think you have. Uh, and we get caught up in this bullshit, we get caught up in this um, projection of, I need to appear this way in order so that I can get what people are really looking for, which is you know, acceptance, validation, significance, connection, love, approval. And avoid, essentially you're saying, going back to your question, you know, what are they trying to avoid? In, in my experience, the, the two primary fears that all human beings have is the fear that we're not enough, and ultimately, therefore, we won't be loved. Hmm. And you can peel the onion back a, a, a million different ways. All roads generally lead to Rome. Wow. 
That's pretty basic. I mean, I guess if you know where you're starting from, it's fairly easy to work forward, right? I mean, if people, if uh, this idea that um, everybody is secretly has some like inkling that I'm not good enough and therefore because I'm not good enough and I'm not going to be loved, uh, is that something that happens at a young age? Is that something that uh, gets perpetuated through life? Or, I mean, I think about for having kids, uh, you know, we were joking a little bit about this, that if, you know, your daughters don't grow up thinking daddy loves them, you know, they end up, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe making money in through some <laughs> more devious manners. But, um, uh, you know, as we get into that, how uh, is it something where, because uh, I'm sure people have been in situations where, you know, people love them, but they won't either accept it or they can't understand it. Perception is reality. Yeah, and you know, we go to, let's say, uh, a baby. When, when a baby's born, it's the quintessential egocentric expression of humanity. You know, you, babies are meant to be egocentric. Now, they don't lie there at one o'clock in the morning and think, you know, mom, dad haven't slept really much you know, for the last week. I'm Children are the most selfish things on the planet. So when you say egocentric, they are the single most selfish, but they have to be for but survival. To survival, yeah. yeah. The baby's not going to say, I've got colic, but I'll wait till 7 a.m. to before I scream because, you know, mom, dad's having a hard time. So, um, you know, that's, that's natural. But there's a, there's a slight challenge. And this is a model where I think the primary fear is, is instigated or, or, or you know, has its genesis. And that is that there's a, a moment where the parents have a perception that there is a, a level of communication between the parent and child where the, you know, the child can understand what the parent's actually saying. And so at that point, the model goes from unconditional love in the child's mind. You know, baby screams two in the morning. You still love the child. You don't blame the child. Baby sure. throws up just be on your new suit before a job interview. You know, it's inconvenient, but you still love the kid because that's what babies do. Yeah. But at two years old, if you think they understand, don't go near the edge of the pool or don't do this. And you know, the perception, the model then is the perception is if the child behaves in a certain way, they get love, validation, approval. And the perception of the child, not the reality, because parent loves the child but the perception of the child is if i don't do something right that love or approval or acceptance value is withdrawn or withheld so by the time we have our earliest memory let's call it you know five six years old whatever it may be we've got several years of conditioning that love has to be earned you know we and we grow up with a, a model of conditional love which most of us then actually project through the rest of our lives into our own relationships how do you head that off um i mean uh, you know like um it's uh, it's so easy to give lip service. It's so easy to say, uh, you know, tell your kids or tell people like your wife, like, oh, I love you. But then it's like, uh, you know, the actions don't always necessarily back up the words. So then, especially for like the kids, I mean, yeah, like that conditional deal. But then how else do you, I guess you could say, like teach your children right from wrong? Like, uh, I mean, if like, you know, like yeah. if, if they go near the stove and they burn their hand, for example, and they come over and they're crying and you're like, oh, you know, like um, you shouldn't have done that and pose from them like going over there and I scream at them like, dude, don't do it, you know, and they hear that and they get a little yeah. nervous so I can startle them. I'm just wondering how, uh, like how you fix that, the, like, because it sounds like it's like yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and there's no perfect model. You know, there's, you know, because again, we want the, the best for our kids. We want to be able to, to guide them. And you know, a parent's job really is to, uh, from my perspective, and we, we spoke a little about this as well, you know, prepare your children for adulthood, prepare them for the time you're not here. And, and one of the greatest gifts I think a parent can give a child is self-esteem, which I know you're, you're great at with your kids as well, John. But you know, from, from that perspective, you know, what's, there's so many different variables that you know, naturally are part of that child's growing up. 
You know, if, if you go to ne neuroscience, yeah, most kids' brain doesn't develop a level of alpha and beta waves until they're around seven. Most kids up to the age of seven spend a lot of time in Delta, which is why they sleep babies a lot, uh, and Theta, which is the you know, sort of hypnosis. It's the land of make-believe. It's where imagination is real. Yeah. And you get a kid five years old, wakes up, and you know, you, they're out of a dream where there's a monster, and you can't tell them there's no monster in the room. Yeah? To them, it's just as real. Sure. And so there's kind of a brain puberty around about sort of seven you know, years old where they can then start developing the critical thinking of, of sort of alpha and, and up into beta. Uh, but what does that mean? That means that there's no guard on the frontal lobe. Uh, it's not active when you, know, you go to the store and it's Walmart and you know, the kid's there and daddy's having a hard time because he's got his own stuff going on. Sure. And he oh, I see a toy because it's strategically placed at eye level. And it's like, you know, daddy, daddy, can I have a toy? And you know, you're either you know, struggling on paying your credit card or you just had an argument or something. So you've got your own stuff going on. And it's like, you know, you're distracted. And it's like, please, you know, kids are persistent. Yeah, sure. Please, 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 please. And in your you know, emotional frustration trying to deal with your own stuff, you snap and say, listen, you can't have a toy. You don't deserve it right now. Now, under seven years old, what the kid's hearing is you don't deserve it. And they have zero bites, like being hypnotized. Yeah, it goes uh -huh. straight in. Now, if they're nine years old, they're, they, you know, they've got the critical thinking. They're probably saying, well, you know something? I caught dad in a bad mood. You know, I'll wait sure. until he's happy, and then I'll hit him with the, you know, with, with the ask. So there's so much that we grow up with sub seven years old that are installed programs, you know, which come from the best of intentions, but you know, mom and dad are just trying to do their own thing, coping with their own stuff, projecting their, you know, the stuff that they grow up with from their parents. And you know, part of it is the fact that you know, we're here to learn, we're here to evolve, we're here to try to grow through that. You know, there's no, we're not here to be perfect. We didn't come here to avoid problems. We came to take them on. Sure. We came to grow through that. We're in earth school, and I think one of the biggest realizations that people can have you know, in context of why we're here is to understand that life itself is a growth-centric experience. Well, don't, don't we also grow up with the idea that our parents are somehow experts? No, they, like, they, yeah, they, yeah, I mean, like... they're dad had have all the answers, right? Yeah, and I remember thinking, like, um, and uh, I've always told people that, uh, the, you know, not necessarily a joke, but, like, I've said it numerous times, um, you can only start... You can't blame your parents after the age of about 25 or 26. <laughs> like, after that point, you mature and... Like, 45, 46. Yeah, if yeah, you're still blaming your parents at, like, you know, 26, 30, and I, meet, and I run into people that are blaming their parents, I'm like, dude, you get to about 24, 25, 26... Like that's that's it. You can't blame your parents for any of this stuff anymore. You got to move on. But I remember growing up and um, you know thinking that my parents were experts in everything. And then you see certain things happen or this and and like you know it doesn't make sense. And then years later you reflect back on it and you realize like you know one your parents aren't experts. They're human beings and they have their own things to deal with and this and you kind of go back and forth and then you become a parent and you and at least for me uh, being a parent was extremely uh, like. A massive amount of growth because um, not only I remember my wife coming home and telling me she was pregnant with twins and twin daughters. Wow. Uh, I grew up with two older brothers. Uh, so now I got a situation where I got these twin girls coming out and uh, I really, you know, had you know, played in the NFL, didn't work with women. Um, so I'd never really had any like uh, girl kind of non-girlfriend friends. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden here I'm situation I'm married and I'm going to have these two little girls to raise. And so you start, you know, kind of at the, uh, you know, we use a statement quite often here. People fail at the margins of their experience, hmm. which I've, I've found that statement kind of applies to just about everything. Like if you want to increase your margin and you want you have to increase your experience. Yeah. And if we're always going to do that. And so here was a brand new experience for me and I was going to fail at this margin. So what do I do? I, uh, I start reading. 
I'm like, I'm going to buy every like strong daughter, strong, uh, strong father book. I'm going to figure out like, Hey, I'm, you know, there has to be experts out there. And like, after I read about 20 different books, uh, the one thing that was cured, uh, was clear, especially with daughters. Uh, if a girl grows up not knowing that her father loves her, she will forever search for that love hundred percent everywhere. And uh, it will not be good that um, if your daughter knows that she loves her and she knows that, that she's protected and taken care of, she'll grow up with good self-esteem. And then she needs uh, not only a positive role model, but needs to see that dad loves mom and that like this is how a good relationship is. So then like if uh, dad abuses mom or you know, verbally or physically or whatever, then she learns like this is how a man should treat a woman. Whereas like a boy on the other hand, like, uh, um, like that's a completely different set of, uh, of ideals yeah. that boys need to grow up to be strong and they need a role model of their father, like, you know, working hard. I think there was a study that, um, they looked at, uh, um, I forgot exactly how it goes, but basically, uh, it was more beneficial for the father to not be in the home and have the mother paint this glorious picture. Like your father died in the war. He was this wonderful hero. More, that was more important in a better environment growing up with this idealistic father figure than to have a father in the home who was negative in some way or yep. was bad. Yep. So like, like the mom being like, um, and the, the analogy was, uh, you know, women so much if the father's not around, like love to shit, talk to dad, your dad was a piece of shit. He's not here. They were, um, the statement was made that if the mom paints this like glorious picture, like your father was a wonderful person, he died in the war, uh, you know, he was this hero and lived this life that the child will grow up emulating him. And like, there's all these stories of these guys that have gone on, uh, you know, without fathers and amass these you know, wonderful things and become a wonderful person based off this idealistic image. So there was this huge contrast. And then as you're reading this stuff, you start creating like this kind of personal kind of analyzing, well, how was I raised? What were the things my dad did? And then you kind of go back and you start realizing the shortcomings of your parents, which is just natural. I mean, you know, nobody's parents, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody has a funny story about their dad or mom. And you realize like, oh man, that piece kind of shaped me. And so, so often with, uh, with my daughters, I think about like part of the reason we moved out here and part of the reason we have a building full of equipment and daddy gets up and goes and lift weights in the morning and daddy's friends are this and everybody kind of fits within this collective is because I want that environment for my daughters. I want them to see that like people get up, work hard and they train and that, uh, you know, daddy just doesn't go sit on the couch and drink beer every night and that mm -hmm. people go out and work and there's interesting people like you guys met my kids this morning. Yeah. I want them to walk over and shake people's hands and look them in the eye and be assertive. And I want them to always like go back and look and be like, man, my dad always had these uh, people always coming over. We had these cool <laughs> friends. And then they go and they look and they'll be like, oh, those were uh, uh, gold medalists. And those were some really, really interesting, famous people. And I, I, I want that for them. Yeah. And um, I just uh, um, I forever think like, uh, you know, if if a lot of what you're dealing with and a lot of stuff that you're combating happens at such a young age, then it becomes kind of the responsibility of the parent to kind of mitigate this stuff and so, or unless they grow and they have to find somebody like you to kind of help peel back the layers and fix all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So is it inherent that everybody's gonna, you know, kind of develop these same set of issues or is there a way that we can head this off? Cause a lot of people listen to this podcast are new fathers or, you know, new parents or this, and they come to us cause they want to learn a training system that they can teach their kids to make them the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. Yeah. So, well, Again, look at what the primary fear is, the fear I'm not enough. So how do you reinforce that somebody is enough without giving them permission to stay in a comfort zone because that then sells out their, their journey of growth? Uh, when we know, say, it's a, we're in a growth-centric experience, we've got a context for it. Now, I call it earth school. 
because you know, if, if you go to school but you don't know you're in school, you're gonna start resenting being in class and why do I get these exams and you know, what's happening and why am I being met, told to go here and there and sit down and, and take notes. But if you understand the, the concept of school, it's great. Now the purpose of school is not to be happy and it's not to give you an education. <laughs> it's to provide an environment where you can make better choices in relationship to you know, getting a better education. And so here, you know, we get the opportunity to make choices. And we can choose, you know, if our father didn't show up, yeah, and I know yeah. Kirk here has, uh, is a great example of that, we can choose that well, we can either become the alcoholic or we can become you know, a Navy SEAL. You know, we can either be, you know, choose it. Which are actually person. synonymous. Those two words actually go together, alcoholic <laughs> and Navy SEAL. SEAL <laughs> somehow stands for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's with the acronym. It's tied in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm drunk right now. What, do, what is it? Sea, uh, alcohol, and land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love yeah. it. But, uh, but no, look, looking at the, um, yeah, uh, looking at one of the biggest challenges, especially with men, today is that we have no demarcation between the identity of boy and man. You, know, you go back into different cultures, the aborigines. Isn't beard and whiskey? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's actually a good point that, um, you know, like the growing of a beard is kind of a sign of like growing into manhood, right? So, yeah. I mean, maybe that's a differentiation, right? Uh, um, define demarcation. So, I, I know our listeners are not the best. Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, everybody here is, in, you know, not a Berkeley grad? No, far from it. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> Berkeley of the East Coast, Marymount University, D3, Berkeley. Isn't that a Surprised junior? I didn't know that. Isn't that a junior college? No, it's a, it's a university. Oh. I'd... D3. Um, yeah, you're smaller so than I am. Trust demarcation. <laughs> uh, yeah, in terms of there, there's no separation of the event. You know, so you go from a, a boy in a tribe in Africa and you go and walk about or you go and kill a lion or you go do something or you get circumcised or whatever the, the ritual is, there is a, a specific uh, event that marks the passage of rites from a boy into a man. You come back and you're now an official warrior of the tribe, you know, like passing out a graduation in the military or what have you. There's a specific event that takes you from a recruit to a soldier. Wow. And you yeah. know, and we don't have that now. Probably is it, you know, one of the few societies that doesn't have. Dude, that's uh, is, is that's uh, is there a dude, reason? That is, is a such story? a no. I mean, that's uh, that's such a great observation, and I mm -hmm. can't believe um, one that uh, we've never heard it, and two, it's it, now that you said it, I'm like, holy shit, that's right. And now I'm thinking, is uh, how do we fix that? I, I, right here, I you guess... got enough property, and we start a man school here. I don't think it's a, it, I mean, um, no, well, you, just, I, you just come here for the test. You don't, well, yeah. you, you don't, you don't train, here. but, uh, no, but, I'm, but I mean, think, think about, um, uh, that's but, an interesting thing because, um, I remember reading somewhere once that it said it's, it's very difficult for a woman to teach a boy how to be a man. Mm. Uh, and they were, you know, relating a lot of the problems that we're having here in America, especially in like the, uh, the black community where it's like, you know, you have these strong mothers that are raising children and there isn't a father in the home. And somebody made this point that it's very difficult for a woman to teach uh, a boy how to be a man, that they need some fatherly role model. But then I'm like, well, if the role models are all pieces of shit, then is that a negative deal? Is it better to have, you know, and then I went back and that's where I found the research on that idea of painting this idealistic image. Mm. So now I'm thinking like, um, if we don't have a rite of passage for boys to become men, well, how many of the, the men that we would deem as fathers and whatnot have gone through their own rite of passage? 
yeah, and and not and had to figure it out themselves, and then have the option to choose how that impacts them. Yeah, and they could choose that. You know, I'm I'm a worthless piece of shit. Yeah, I didn't graduate, or yeah, they can use it to empower them. But it's still muddy waters. They still have to figure it out on their own. Sure. And if you want to see an area that really defines people, it's their level of identity. Because you know, people listening to this, you know, they've, they're getting an intellectual level of understanding, which is you know, obviously because it's English. Yeah. Uh, the next stage of that is an emotional level of understanding, which you know, knowing and not doing is the same as not knowing. But everybody knows what they should do, but most people don't do what they know. So uh, take an example of smoking. People know they shouldn't smoke. There's no logical argument on the planet you could put together that would you know, show why people should smoke. Sure. So, but why do people do it? They know it intellectually, but unless they have an emotional level of understanding, uh, they go to the doctor and they say, hey, listen, you know, that the scans come back, you take one more cigarette, you'll have a fatal stroke. Mm, now, now we feel it. But the emotional level of understanding still doesn't guarantee lasting change. It guarantees change in the moment. Mm -hmm. And what guarantees change that's lasting is how you tie your identity to it. For example, uh, if you are become a smoker who's quit, you're 10 times more likely to restart because now you're trying to use willpower. Now, I'm a smoker, so someone offers me a cigarette. No, I've quit. And it's, you know, willpower has a time limit. Whereas if I change my identity to becoming a non-smoker and somebody offers me a cigarette, it's easy. There's no willpower involved. It's who I am. Did, does that go for alcoholics? Because uh, I've, I've met numerous people where it's like, oh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And that's a big part of their identity is this recovering alcoholic and they really cling to it. And I just always remember thinking like, why do you always have to tell everybody the story? Is it, uh, is, is it the bumper to, to, to give them enough breathing room to be able to fight the urge? Part, part of that is correct, and it's, I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of, yeah. Um, I don't drink. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, drink. I don't like now, it. Why, why do vegetarians not eat meat, right? It's not because they have different teeth or a different digestive system. It's because, you know, I am a vegetarian. That's what governs my choices in the supermarket and the restaurant. I was going to ask you something. Um, one of the, uh, Arthur Joseph was the guy who I worked with who was, um, you know, a speech developer and who worked with Tony Robbins and a lot mm -hmm. of these guys. And uh, Arthur Joseph made an interesting point to me once. He said, you know, uh, at Tony's events, uh, they serve vegetables. They're mm -hmm. uh, like a vegetarian based, a lot of the events. Yep. And the reason being is that um, when you take away meat and you actually add, and bring in vegetarian or a, a you know, plant-based kind of deal, it makes people more open to suggestion. And uh, if you look at all the different cults uh, around the world, most of them are vegetarian based. Interesting. And because it, uh, it changes blood chemistry and makes people more open to suggestion. And uh, so I, I asked him, and I was like, "Is uh, he goes most of the kind of the self help things that you that you'll go to when they're kind of retreats and whatnot are very uh, uh, you know they'll never serve steaks, never this. It's always very plant based because it makes people more open to suggestion for a life change. And they found that uh, that chemistry changes. And um, I just I've, I've never been to one of Tony's events. I just watched right. the one on Netflix and and that w uh, weird chance meeting amazing, with amazing, interesting. Uh, the dude, we watched it, and uh, uh, I was just blown away by not only. Um, how detailed his staff was and how like it, it was almost as if he scripted everything <laughs> with people that were actors that didn't know it was a script yeah. like it's like he knew who was there for the life change and knew how he could. I mean it just unbelievable I mean it looked organic but I knew it wasn't and uh, it just it, it just blew me away man we, we watched it and I was just like oh my god dude like um, I don't know if I would ever want to go to one but I would want to be on the backside to see the way it was done yeah. just so I could understand like how to make that, I mean, to be able to go in and make that much of a connection and, and allow mm -hmm. people to make those life changes. But I also think the people that are showing up are ready for a change. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in that event for 15 years. Yeah, that particular one you saw, Date with Destiny. And yeah. Yeah, I was a been a trainer for Tony. I was Tony's youngest ever trainer in 2002. And, uh, and so 
we see um, all, you know, it, there's not a, a demographic that's not represented. You know, you, you'll have a, a bias towards people that think that they're really there to want to improve their lives, but you'll have everything in that room from people that are suicidal and think that this is their last chance, people who are using um, significance because their problem's so big that you know not even Tony can you know, shift it, and I'm here to prove that because it gives them validation of their, their problem. Sure. You've got people that are um, addicted to drugs and suicidal, and then you've got the $100 million CEOs who, you know, ironically, are usually addicted to drugs and suicidal. Uh, yeah, and, and sort of everything in between. And so, yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal cauldron of, uh, and laboratory of human behavior and, and expression. So I was very fortunate to, to have that level of training for, for so many years. But to see Tony, I mean, Tony's so elegant because oh. it's his life. You know, yeah. he, he spent 40-odd you know, years you know, perfecting this and through trial and error. And you know, he is the master of his game, as you, know, as you should be at 40 years of, of really sure. having a passion for wanting to do that. But you know, it's, it's really interesting when you see Do you see think it's a passion levels. to help? Uh, do you think it's like, because um, th this is a thing, and uh, um, I always, I would love to sit and actually talk with him and be like, is this your, you know, your way to give back, or is this a way for you, to, or is this part of your validation? Like, almost like, I knew I could do it. Yeah, well, we're, we're all human. Yeah, a lot of people fall into what I call the pedestal trap. And, you know, one of the things that I do to my audience, I, I'm very, very uh, keen to state that, yeah. Well, um, uh, I had the opportunity to hear P uh, Peter present and speak on, I think it was on Saturday. And um, not only, uh, and if you guys, I know you have talks on YouTube and you have some other things that we'll link up, but uh, not only an eloquent speaker, but um, has an ability to, um, and this isn't in a bad way, be non-threatening. Mm -hmm. Like a very good connection and how we kind of work the room and, you know, talk to people in this. And I always look at speakers from just their mannerisms because I'm always looking to try to improve my ability to speak. And uh, sometimes I think that like my speaking style is more like a sledgehammer. <laughs> whereas, uh, uh, you know, like I think about like the ability to finesse and work the metal. I got, yeah. I got one tool. I, and I know your audience because masculine energy responds to challenge. Yeah, predominantly. It's a gross generalization. But, yeah, feminine energy responds to praise. Yeah. As a, but, <laughs> you yeah. heard my wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And so some men are naturally more feminine. Yeah? Some women are naturally more masculine. So rather than get tied up and, and get wrapped around the axle on gender, I tend to look at you know, more of the sort of the energy because the truth is we have access to both. Mm -hmm. uh, and so where's your center of gravity? You know, where do you live? Where do you visit? And you, know, you, know, you obviously have guys all here in this room, natural, core, strong, alpha male, masculine guys. But that doesn't mean to say we don't have access to our feminine. Uh, and so, you know, but where do you live? Where do you visit? You know, you're left-handed or you're right-handed. Well, you're both. You just tend to favor one more than the other. Sure. So, you know, from uh, the pedestal side, I'm I'm very keen on stating, as you would have heard me say on Saturday, I'm, my role is to hold up a mirror to allow people to see their own greatness. Mm -hmm. The second you put me on a pedestal, you, by definition, minimize yourself. Yeah, yeah, by contrast. And that, that goes against the entire message I try to give people. Dude, amen. I mean, we, we run into this all the time where um, people will send me this, uh, oh, coach, and I'm always like, ah, I'm not a coach. Uh, I'm like you. I'm a good athlete that just happened to develop a system based off of my athleticism to help you be better. Believe me, I'm. Uh, um, if we were in a training environment, we would train together as training partners. There would never be a coach. Uh, Raphael and some of the guys that I've worked with, I view as coaches. I'm more like you, where it's like I just want you to be the best version of yourself, agnostic of me. I don't yeah. need this for my ego. That's what I love about you, know, you John, and, and having known you as, as little as I have, literally, <clears throat> in, in the last few days, and and come across and looked at your work and, and that passion for wanting to help people. People, you know, get the edge to be able to be a better version of themselves to bring what you know to the table uh, is is highly commendable and, and quite rare to be fair because you know, I've I dropped out of school I said 16 but I, I've sat on the board of, of some of the world's top business schools uh, in entrepreneurship that's kind of more my background is, is building businesses and 
going back to academia at that level from a non-student perspective was fascinating because it really showed me that vast majority of teachers are using the role to gain significance and justify their ego. Whereas for me, the role of every teacher should be for their student to excel them. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything other than that is ego. Well, I mean, if, if you can't make somebody better than you, like, um, you know, and that's kind of, I, I think about this as a father. Um, my job is not to prove to my children how good I am. My job as a father is to make me, to make them a better version mm -hmm. of, you know, for them to surpass me. And uh, one thing I became really fascinated by, and I was actually reading about it last night, is the idea that, um, and I, I don't know if uh, people have heard me ever say it on the podcast, but uh, just it's about the idea of uh, generational wealth. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it was the king of Dubai said, you know, my father rode a camel. I drive a Mercedes, my son will drive a, a Lamborghini, his son will drive a Bugatti, my great-grandson will ride a Camel, yep. and it lasts three generations, and uh, the idea that you know, the worst thing you can be is a rich man's son, yeah. and like, why is it that these individuals go and they uh, you know, amass this amazing you know, fortune, they're able to do all this, and then like one generation, their kid is usually able to extend it, and then by that third generation, it's gone. It's gone to Vegas. Yeah, it's gone to Vegas, because those kids never learn what it takes, they never have to grow up, and so then, as a successful person, how do you instill your children to find their own success and not just be able to, to live this? And then it's like, how do you kind of balance these things? And like, it's become this uh, uh, personal kind of uh, quest of like knowledge of reading, of trying to understand like this, this uh, 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 pet project of mine of like, how do you empower people to be, be their own version of something and not just become like, a carbon copy worse version of somebody else who's already attained something. Well, well here's how you don't do it. You don't tell them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, again, because the very def uh, the, um, sort of thought process around you telling somebody, here's what you should do, usually reinstalls or, or reinforces the fact that, well, that means I'm not good enough as I am. And therefore, that triggers the primary fear. And what most people do is they go to the first level of that awareness and they shut down. They retain it as an intellectual awareness. They don't, they don't deepen that and make a change in their life. So you know, the cost of awareness is responsibility. And a lot of people, therefore, don't want that level of responsibility because it compels them to have to act in accordance with the insight or admit that they're stupid or dumb. And so a lot of people hang out you know, in, a, in a comfort zone that's killing them. And so you know, being able to answer the question, my role is really to, you know, for me, and when I become a parent, you know, I've got two Jack Russell Terriers right now, so I'm, I'm looking forward it's gonna to, happen, don't to, worry. to going through that, I, that journey that you're on now, John. I, I'll tell you this, and I tell Tex and Luke this, uh, and Doc Parsley's got three kids as well. Uh, I think every guy on the planet, uh, I don't think everybody should have kids, uh, but I think everybody, or let me tell you, I said, I don't think everybody uh, should be gifted with kids, but I think everybody should have the opportunity to be a father, mm. just for the fact that, um, to see like just rites of passage like uh like we were joking about like um you know you having kids and like never realizing uh like i never realized the value of sleep until it was taken from me with with <laughs> twins and like all of a sudden like in, and like before i thought oh i'll sleep when i'm dead like that was my and then when i had kids i realized the power of like that much sleep deprivation to the point where like you and your wife are looking at each other and she's like I, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown and I'm like I, I almost crashed my car I'm so tired yeah. and then like somehow fighting through it and then talking to other fathers are like oh yeah don't worry it's gonna end and like that kind of rite of passage or like you said you know the kid throws up on you and you can either get mad or just laugh about it which is what I do where I think like uh, I'll like kind of text my wife and be like remember to write this down she has a book where she writes all these funny things down <laughs> Great. like um, I you know my daughter the other day said uh, 
I was talking to Luke or about Luke and Ashley who just got married having kids and my daughter's like, uh, it's going to be terrible. Uh, the kids are going to eat all their bread and they're not going to have any bread for sandwiches. I was like, I looked at her and I was like, what? She's like, yeah, they're, uh, the babies are going to eat all the bread and they're not going to have any bread for sandwiches. It's going to be tough to have kids. And like her, her association with having kids was uh, not having enough bread. Like I just was like, say that again. And I wrote it down, sent it to my <laughs> wife, she wrote it down. But like, it's just um, the rite of passage of having children uh, is such a funny thing that uh, I think everybody should do it just to be like um, so tired. I remember uh, I was changing my daughter's diaper like two in the morning. I hadn't slept any more than 15 minutes in like three months because the baby's, you know, eight, six times a day and the whole deal. And I remember uh, I went to change my daughter's diaper as I took the diaper off, she diarrheaed all over my arm. And I remember like looking at it and I just kind of took the wipe, cleaned her up, wiped myself off there and went back to bed. And it was like two days later I showered. And I remember in the shower being like, didn't I get diarrhea on my arm? Like, and I just remember being so tired and really not caring. And uh, I told my wife and she's like, huh, like it was no yeah. big deal. And I'm yeah. like, anybody else, if they got shit on would be like, oh, I gotta go on yeah, yeah. the, the parental tired. So I just can't wait for these guys to have kids, Tex and Luke, so I can see that and get a laugh. That's that's all I'm living for. <laughs> right. So, so sorry, sorry to cut you off. What's that doc? You have uh, funny stories like that too? I think we all do. Man. Yeah, every every <laughs> dad. Every, every parent's been through that shit. Yeah. yeah. I was smart enough to have all my kids two years apart and while in medical school and residency and so forth. So got all the sleep deprivation a man could possibly get, you know, because you, you know, the stat is you lose 25% essentially, right? You lose six months of sleep in the first two years you have a child. So if you have a kid every two years, <laughs> you know, and you do, you know, and you're doing hospital rotations and stuff at the same time, it's like wow. wicked smart. Oh, I, I just remember the uh, when they looked at like uh, sleep deprivation for twins and triplets and for multiples, it was not like uh, double; it was exponential. Yeah. yeah. So it was like <laughs> for that first three months, I remember it was like these 45 minute stretches. I would just like oh, shit, if you just have two alternating, like that's it. Like there's no sleep right there. It, well, it, it, <laughs> well, and and the crazy part was my wife who's insane is uh in a, in a great way she wanted to breastfeed those kids so she breastfed them exclusively for the first six months and like so it was my job to get them up kind of get them ready and then she would do it at the same time and so i like had to like stage i was like clean them okay and then it was like lay back down and then 45 minutes later it was like okay put them back and then i would just lay down again and for three months that was my life uh, wow. and uh it was it was awful but uh i love it it's 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 a rite of passage and i i think like maybe that's maybe parented or some yeah. of these things go back to rite of passage well I, I, we talk about identity and you know, one of the, the big transitions uh, and rite of passage around identity at that point is going from a non-parent to a parent. And what that compels you to do is evolve into a higher level of, of understanding where life is more about other than self. Mm. Uh, now it's no longer just about me. And you know, we, you know, for parents, you probably understand the, the concept of the terrible twos, mm -hmm. and people don't have a context for it. And it's, it's almost a similar in uh, miniature version. So a baby's so egocentric, it spent the first 18 months, you know, two years of its life knowing that it is the center of the universe. Now, at two years old, when you've got that sort of understanding communication, they have to go through the growing pains of still wanting to be the center of the universe, but are no longer. Yeah. And that's where the tantrums come from. It's like, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean? It's not all about me now. Mm -hmm. um, and as a parent, when you have you know, children for the first time, you suddenly go through that sort of adult version of the terrible twos because, you know, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean I can't go out and, and get drunk with my, my mates? Or what do you mean yeah. I, I can't sleep for eight hours? Yeah, so you suddenly start to have that sort of growth pain of moving into a fact that, well, life is more about how do I contribute? 
And you asked a question earlier about Tony. You know, is, is the guy real? Is he doing it because he cares? T Tony, we don't put it, no, nobody should be on a pedestal. Yeah. But having spent, you know, been in that environment for long enough, I'll, I'll put a quote that Tony is one of Tony's quotes. And uh, there's a couple of Tony's quotes I'm, I, 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 I live by. And this one is, is very relevant to the conversation. He said, power moves to those in direct proportion to their willingness to serve. And when you look at the sort of evolution of consciousness, when you look at the evolution of emotional maturity, not just physical maturity, which and the two are definitely not correlated. Sure. You know, there's a lot of um, yeah, emotional teenagers running around in adult bodies. Sure. And so when you understand that as a parent, my role now in alignment with that, am I going to resist? Am I going to bitch about it? Am I going to complain to my buddies that, you know, you don't understand because you know, I'm late for work because, or are you going to come from a place of using that to empower you? Yeah, it's more weight on the bar. Well, but we're here to grow. And we're, we're in the gym. If life is your personal trainer, and if you have a context for understanding this in, in a way that, look, if you hire a personal trainer and you go to a gym because you're training for a marathon, for example, or a game, then you're going to want your money back if you're not throwing up in 60 minutes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you're paying this guy to push you past limits that you're not pushing yourself past. But if you take it from the perspective of the muscle fiber yeah, and you're being broken and you're busting out that last rep, yeah, that last flip on the hill today, whatever it may yeah. be. And you know, what's the bicep saying? It's, it's sending messages to the brain, pain signals, stop, I'm being broken down, what the hell are you doing? But from the perspective or the consciousness level of the athlete, you're proud, you're trying to bust that last rep. You, you, you're happy if you can't lift your arms for the next three days, you know, because sure. you've got a different perspective. Now, most people, when they're living their life and adversity shows up or lack of sleep because of the kids or whatever it may be, they're living their life from the perspective of the muscle fiber. And they never be able to chunk up to say, well, hang on a minute. No, I'm here you know, in life's gym. And if I'm here to get strong, if life is a growth-centric experience, you know, the strongest trees grow in the strongest winds, yeah. not the best soil. Yeah. If you want to be a better version of yourself, pray for strong winds and don't bitch about them when they show up. Yeah. And having that level of relationship to adversity and to challenge and to sleep deprivation and yeah. stuff like that uh, gives you a, a lot more of emotional resilience to show up to be able to give more of your gift to the world. My mom used to tell us... Um, uh, the hottest fire forges the strongest metal. Yeah. And um, these guys have heard me tell the story, but uh, I, I have a, a real samurai sword. Mm. Um, so I waited 10 years to have the oldest sword maker in Japan, like 20, they've basically been making swords in Japan since the 800s. Their family makes like the emperor's silverware and it's like the oldest continuous sword maker in Japan, like 28 generations. Wow. And uh, my friend met them and uh, we gave him deposits and waited like a decade to get swords because like the king of Dubai or, or somewhere like ordered a bunch of swords. It took them like a decade to make them all. So I ended up getting a sword and then we had to go to Seiki and actually collect the swords. And you go through this whole tea ceremony and they like bequeath it to you. And we got to see how they make the swords. So there's a, the reason that they're in Seiki in the place is because there's a river in the back where they collect iron ore through the water. They take the iron ore and then they basically smelt it into the steel and then they pick the steel and they forge it. It takes them about a year. And they took us through like all of the process on how they make the sword and how they fold it. And they know how many folds are equal to this and this. And they have this whole process. And uh, the analogy uh, for the sword was by far the best analogy I've ever heard for life of like, you know, like, uh, the, the, you know, the water, everything is for is in this place and their family found it and they've been there for, you know, 1400 years and they have a mausoleum with every rubbing of every sword they've ever made. I mean, just like the history of this and like their ability to make it and how they teach it father to son and like the, the generations of like father to son is taught mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, and I'm like looking over and there's her six year old little son and he's making a little mini sword. 
<laughs> and like how he forges it and the grandfather's there and everything's taught and like, you know, how he does the engraving. And then like uh, when they get old, they engrave. When they're in, you know, younger, they actually hammer. And then the kids, it's just like this amazing thing. It's the kids polish and they learn all this at like the, fo at the foot of their, of their, of their grandfather, their yeah. father and their dad. I mean, it's just the most amazing, most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. But the analogy um, about folding the metal and seeing how they did it and how they heat it and they cool it and they pound it and they, and you know, and I, I asked them, I'm like, how do you know it has enough folds? And they're like, when it, you know, when this, when we hit the steel, it has the right sound. When the metal heats in a certain color, we know. I was like, how do you know? And they're like, 1400 years of yeah, doing this father to son. And I think like, that analogy for me, like I left there and it was uh, like I had, you know, the plane ride back from from uh, Japan back to the United States. It was like I, I didn't watch a movie. I just sat there and like reflected on this of like, holy shit, this is the analogy for life. Like this is this is performance training. This is everything that there's, uh, you know, you're collected in a place, you're forged, you're bit, you, and if you don't heat and cool, heat and cool and pound and do this and move, then it just, you end up as just a, a useless clay. But over time, if you're polished and, and sharpened and molded and put into a deal, you become this priceless object that, uh, you know, only a few people in the world ever have. And um, uh, I'm extremely blessed to, to have this and waited a decade for it. And it was kind of a funny joke that I gave the money to my buddy. And for like a decade, I would always make this joke, be like, did you really just steal my money? He's like, no, I gave it as a deposit. And Lily called me a decade later and was like, our swords are ready. <laughs> I was like, what? I thought this was a joke. And we literally went You're to a Japan. Complex little snowflake, man. Right, but I like, mean, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> every every time I'm around this guy, I hear some sort of that. Yeah. So who who goes and watches this Emirates? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but like that for me. So when I was in college. Um, one of the most influential books I read, well, there were two really influential books. One was uh, Eldritch's Wild at Heart. I don't know if you read that one, but it was the idea of like, fight for something, be a man. Like, like there's like, you know, like don't confuse your role, who you are, like, you know, uh, you know run a hundred miles an hour. And you know, if you make mistakes, like that's part of life. And it was just, that was empowering. But the other one was a uh, Mushiashi's book of five rings who is the one the famous, most famous samurai. And he wrote this book on Bushido and like mastery, the idea of like dedicating yourself to a craft and like mastering that craft. And that's the, that's what I took for playing football that I was like, I'm gonna dedicate myself to this craft and be, you know, the best I can be. Could I have been better? 100%. And, um, you know, but for what I was able to do, I was able to maximize it. And then when I got out, like um, that, or I think that piece was really missing for me. What I saw when I got out of football was that people weren't willing to dedicate themselves to the mastery of things. Mm. And, um, you know, and then I meet other people like, you know, like you guys, for example, where, you know, here's your craft, here's your sword, here's your mastery. And uh, I'm going to be a student of this and understand it. And I'm always amazed by like people like a Tony Robbins or when you meet people that are true masters of their craft, whether it's making a sword or it's like helping people or doing this or, or you know, we had Gunnar Peterson on the podcast who's a, you you know, trainer for a lot of Hollywood celebrities. And uh, he's the best uh, at what he does. He gets people ready for movies and trains models and trains all these high-end people that, um, you know, go out and they, you know, make $100 million movies. And, like, that's his representation of what he does. So I'm always fascinated by people that have found their niche and have mastered their niche and can basically produce it not just once but over a lifetime of excellence. And, um, you know, that to me is, uh, is really what you strive for is that ability to, you know, really just master that deal. And that's what we search for here at Power Athlete is that idea of mm -hmm. like, you know, can we constantly keep refining and refining or refining this thing to the point where if you just do what we say, if you just follow the program as it's written, the outcome is what we're yeah. looking for. The only factor is your willingness, how far you're willing to push yourself. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've, um, you know, what's that text? No, 
that that w is my question for you, Peter. Right? You get this experience. You give a presentation for one day, or work with someone in a workshop for a weekend. What is the approach to get them to then follow through? Right? John yeah. just said it right there. This the secret is consistency. The process. Consistency. I, How do we get them to? I made buy a. Uh, um, I was on a podcast for uh, Barbell Shrugged, and people have written this quote down. And I kind of made it up on the fly, but. Um, I, I always looked at training and really just life is like moving a big pile of dirt. Like, hey, I got to get that pile, you know, this rock pile, this dirt from here to here. Some days you get a shovel, some days you get a spoon. But as long as I get to move a little every day, I'm moving towards my goal. And that's like training. And that's like life. But um, I think for, for sets and reps and numbers and programs and things that we do, it's very set out. But like, and I think what Tex is asking is for what people do with you, is there a system? Is there a way like personal growth is such a... Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's 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 a consistent theme that breaks it down. I'm I'm a guy that likes to make things simple. Yeah, and nothing's ever truly simple. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of complexity in terms of layers and layers and layers. But yeah, you know, I like to break it down pretty simple. So, yeah, you know, I I love the quote. You know, your your mission in life is to discover your gift. Your purpose in life is to give it away. And a lot of the time, that the difference between that is your, you know, one is a, an egocentric sense of, of self, one is an ethnocentric sense of self. And the people that I see that follow through and are consistent are the people that have found a reason that's bigger than them. Those that are still struggling to prove themselves are using motivation. Motivation is, has a time limit. You know, it's, it's willpower. It, it doesn't, you, know, you can't turn it on every second. It's like running a car in sport mode. You know, the engine will wear out at some point. It's not designed for that. It's designed to overtake when you need things to be able to overtake. That's great. But you know, if you look at some of the, you know, the great uh, athletes, they did do a study on the, uh, the Olympic athletes that had actually broken long-standing records. You know, records that have stood for you know, a decade or more that were then broken. Was there a like the four-minute mile? Yeah. Like stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. And they, they looked at uh, what was the comparison. The only thing they, they found, you know, were they training differently? Were they thinking differently? And the only thing that they found was that the people that had broken the long-standing records all were doing it for a bigger reason than self. They wanted to inspire their country. They wanted to be an example of uh, other people to follow what was possible. They had a, a reason for it. And yeah, those that were just you know, hadn't done that were doing because they're still trying to prove that they were good enough. They were still trying to get the significance. They were still trying to validate. It was all an, you know, an egocentric sense of covering up some level of insecurity to avoid the fear that we're not enough at some level. And, yeah, and you see this play out in, in, yeah, in so many ways. So when I'm in a, a seminar, if I'm working with somebody, if I'm personal coaching, what have you, I'm, I'm looking to yeah, how do I transition quickly the, you know, the emotional insecurities that still have people running around a hamster wheel to nowhere for you know, 30, 40 years of their life trying to validate themselves and, uh, and shift them into something that's bigger than them. Mm -hmm. you know, all, all stress comes from being too focused on yourself most of the time. Yeah, that's and yeah, I, I took a speaking course, or yeah, there was a guy. I was took a course, and a guy was talking about a speaking course, and he was saying, "Hey, you know, I can, I can help people get really comfortable on the stage." He said, I can, "I can get anyone over their fear of speaking in a day, like in, a, in an hour. I get anyone over." I'm like, "Bullshit!" Like, how do you do? <laughs> He's like, "If you're thinking about yourself, you'll be nervous. If you think about the audience, you can't be nervous. Like you, you're out of it." And mm -hmm. Like, sure enough, I mean, I mean, I, I'd been on stage for five, six years at that t time and done, you know, three, four hundred talks. So it wasn't, I, I don't think I really got nervous, but I, I did notice a big difference, man. Like, anytime I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm kind of botching this up, you know? Um, and I get self-conscious. Like, that's the only uncomfortable mm -hmm. place on stage. Like, if I'm looking out at the audience and I'm like, hey, you don't, 
are, you know, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Like, is there, is there something missing here? And then I'm thinking about him. I'm thinking about her. Like, yeah, let's chat, you know? I've got a great analogy that I, uh, I was taught by a guy called uh, yeah, um, Doug Stevens uh, many years ago when I was you know, probably 15 years ago. And I've been a professional speaker for you know, close to 20 years now. And uh, he really helped me with a very similar analogy. And he called it the rule of 50. Because when people start out speaking, a lot of times they're focused on how can I validate myself by the audience's feedback. Yeah, if I get a, a, a one out of 10 on the feedback score, it invalidates 10, 10 out of 10. Yeah, that's, that's just how most people are wired because of that primary fear. But he called it the rule of 50. And he said that um, every time he goes to speak, his role is to move the audience to the point of awareness. Obviously, the, the ultimate goal is that they get the, the, the realization. They change their life. They make, it, they make a shift. But it may take 50 different times to be able to hear that. And what he gets to do is move everybody up one. So if 25 people out of 1,000 you know, change their life, it's because he's grateful enough to have 49 people gone before him that have moved them up. And if he gets to move someone from 12 to 13, that's great. If someone calls him full of shit or whatever, because they're moving from you know, 36 to 37, they've not heard it enough times. And I really like that because it takes the onus off my responsibility is to fix you, which is the wrong aspect. That's how most people approach personal growth as a coach or some other bullshit, again, to validate their own sense of, of how good they are. But it takes you out of the equation. It's how can I serve these people without validating you know, myself through what they do, but knowing that I'm here to give the best of what I can. It gets my ego out of the way. It allows me to show up. It allows me to give the best. And if that isn't what they need to hear right now for that particular point, that's okay. If people disagree with things, that's what makes things happen. I'm not the guru. But if I can come from a place of not uh, attaching my identity or my self-worth through how many people suddenly change their life, but I, that allows me to focus on delivering information that ironically usually changes a lot more lives. Well, I mean... Uh Shouldn't it not be your personal responsibility to change somebody's life? Like, I, I always think on this piece, like, um, it's not my job to, uh, you know, make somebody a better athlete. It's my job to be able to provide the information for them to be able to access it so that if they follow the path that we've laid out, that they can reach this pinnacle of performance. And so, like, uh, that was a big thing I ran into when we owned a commercial gym and I used to work with people. I would get so excited and I was so into <laughs> them getting better that uh, I realized, I was like, dude, this is emotionally hard on me because I'm wanting it more than you are. I want everybody. <laughs> to have this like this revelation I want people to do so well and I realized that it was like it was fucking hard on me where all of a sudden somebody's like well I just don't care that much yeah and I'm like what do you mean you don't care like yeah. this isn't important to you like this is this is what we do every day I wouldn't show up here and invest this time and money and effort if this wasn't the most important things in my life and people were yeah. like eh. yeah and I remember thinking um I don't want to go through life uh, that lackluster. I was like, honestly, uh, I'm the wrong person for you because I don't want to be around people that um, are just like, meh, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. Like, I want people like, uh, my brother Rob is funny. He uh, he always makes the joke. He's like, you know, um, in breakfast, uh, the chicken contributed, the pig was committed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, he always uses that dude. And he's like, you know, in life, he's like, there's a lot of chickens, but he's like the pig he's all in, be the yeah. pig. And like, it was just kind of this joke that he's used. And my brother is super successful in what he does in terms of like being able to sell and like work with his clients. He just has a whole different level of it and he's done very well. Um, but like that analogy for me with him was just phenomenal. I and I think like, I look at everything like that. Like I want to be the pig. And when I meet people that are chickens and they just want to contribute and they don't want to go all in, I'm like, ah, I'm just not the right guy. I, I want to have, I would rather have less people that are like, you know, the, um, 
like in what was it in was in Mad Max uh, in Fury Road remember like the Mad Max where it shows all the trucks and everybody's loaded up like driving out there I want all those people on the trucks like I want to be everybody storming out there ready to go the dude playing the guitar on the front I want to have uh, a band of people on the trucks I don't want people that are like oh, I'm not ready to take a ride I'll be like I want you on the front playing Metallica the whole way we're going there and, and that's great as an ideal but the, the mistake you made John which is the same mistake I made for a long time until you know you, you found probably uh, uh, discovered it uh, a lot sooner than I did was that as you say, the moment you want something more for somebody else than they want it for themselves, you're wasting your time. Yeah. You, know, you guys nailed that. I mean, like, I've seen here, like, this, that, I mean, I'm done for the day. That, that was an yeah. epiphany for me. I, I was talking about that at, at the event. Um, I was telling the audience about kind of my history, and I had that, you know, um, I was uh, succeeding. My mentor in his concierge practice was, like, the like the pimp practice in, in California, uh, Southern California, and, uh, and I hated it. I hated that job, man. And I, I couldn't understand why I hated it. I mean, this was like, if you would have asked me for the 10 years leading up to that, would you know, design your ideal practice, it would have looked exactly like that. And I hated the damn practice. And you're exactly right. Because I wanted that. I wanted their, like, it, it, I mean, it, it was built around this performance model, right? Yeah. It's like, we're going to set quarterly goals and annual goals. It's not like you come in sniffles and sneak. I mean, you get well, that no, shit. But and, I mean, you're, and I wanted it more than they did. Like, they were like, well, because you're they're worth like a hundred million bucks. Like, hey, 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 Doc, can you speed this, speed this call up? You're like, hey, dude, we only talk four times a year and you want me to, like, yeah. you know, you got to cram my one hour call into 30 minutes? Like, you fucking kidding me, man? Yeah. You're like, I, I live and die with this shit. Why yeah. isn't it important to you? Yeah. And uh, uh, that was, I think, um, what I loved about the NFL is that, uh, Every single person out there now, obviously for money, for fame, whatever reason you were there, uh, everybody was fucking committed. Like you to, to the earn point, your job every day. Yeah, right? you got to yeah. earn your job every day, and yeah. and like there was never. I mean, sometimes like uh, people were like, oh, this like, if this guy didn't put in the effort or he wasn't fucking committed, I'll get rid of this motherfucker and bring somebody else in that's willing to fucking die for this thing. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, that level of commitment is what I was used to, and mm. that's who I was used to be on. And then I go into this commercial gym setting where people are like, oh, I'm okay. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you're not living and dying with this thing? Like, this isn't like, like, you don't approach every opportunity as like, you're like, this is my day to fucking get better because tomorrow I got to be better enough to be able to stack all of these. Because I looked at it like, hey, in the off season, I had X amount of days to stack to greatness and every day built upon this day. And I knew that like my weight had to be this and this, and then you have to build to this pinnacle piece so that I can go out and do my job at the height. And if I miss a day, or a day fucks up, or this or this, and I'm not at that piece, then I know like everything stacks up, and it was just this constant like, choo, 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 choo. and then I got a chance to go out there and run my Ferrari at 100 miles an hour. I'm not a Ferrari guy, but like my fucking monster truck or whatever it is, I get to go out and fucking drive at 100 miles an hour, and I get to wreck people, and I get to know exactly how good or bad I was able to do in the off season, whether or not it worked. And like that piece for me was, uh, I mean, selfishly, it was validation. Um, and what was hard was when you retire and you don't have that way to validate, you're like a, a fucking rudderless boat. And I remember feeling, and actually, uh, we had, um, um, uh, Derek Woodski, who's, uh, you know, was a, a Olympian, uh, Canadian thrower, super intelligent guy. And, uh, what I would consider, you know, one of my kindred spirits, he's one of those people I met and I was like, have we not been friends for 20 years? Mm. And I was sad that we haven't been, but he made this interesting point that when you have a life change, like, you know, your athletic career ends that like the clock stops and you're stuck in this, like, 
clock stop. You're stuck in this like a uh, weird, uh, you know, purgatory until something else big happens and then the clock can continue again. And how many athletes and how many people have this psychic success and then it ends and they get stuck in this thing and they don't know how to restart their clock. It's their identity. Identity. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, I had to change my identity. I had to realize that like no longer am I a professional athlete. And I was so scared to, uh, because what most professional athletes do is what's comfortable to them. They go and they be a coach. So now I'm a coach now, which is still parasiting off what they did. I'm in the media. Now I'm an announcer. Now I do this and this. And everything is attached to the game where that they can continue to use their identity as their credibility, as their currency. Like you watch it like, uh, you know, you turn on, you know, uh, football, American football, and they have these pregame shows where it's like Terry, this guy, you know, Terry, Tony, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, Howie are going to be on there. And these guys were all great players 30 years ago. And they're talking about when they played in this. And their currency was what they did in their 20s. And now they talk about it. But that's their currency isn't like, wow, somebody was like, man, this guy's highly intelligent. And even though they're, they're super smart guys, their currency is what they did in their 20s. And they're still trading on that currency. What I wanted to do is I wanted to create new currency. I wanted to create something different that uh, allowed me more buy-in now um, and my, my deal was always like when people meet me or they go on and be like oh dude that guy was pretty sharp and this and this oh and that guy also played 10 years in the NFL hmm. instead of being like oh that dude played 10 years in the NFL and he's this and uh, when Woodski brought up that point about that clock stopping I realized being around a lot of athletes and a lot of people that I was friends with that their clock hasn't started again that they're still stuck in this limbo and I constantly tell them like go out and do something new go out and, and give back do something restart yourself reinvent yourself because we can reinvent ourselves any way you want and yeah. uh, people are so scared to try to find a new identity because it means being vulnerable and opening to the uh, the validation that they're not good enough because you know, they've reached a certain level of, of success or significance and to be able to be vulnerable again would you know, doubt that and we, we do it every year in school you, know, you go through fifth grade and you pass fifth grade what happens you go to sixth grade but the questions are harder yeah you know, they're meant to be because it's a, it's a continual growth centric level of experience why are people so afraid to not be good enough well this goes into I guess your talk from Saturday and you mentioned four things that are holding you back so first one was addiction to certainty mm. so if if that tracks in line to the answer to this question yeah so uh as an entrepreneur i you know people always ask me you know what's the what's the one thing that you know, it makes a, an entrepreneur successful and you know th there's no one thing you know life is an orchestra not an instrument but if i was to put down you know one of the primary aspects or the differentiators between people that i've seen whose lives work as entrepreneurs and those that don't and in general because you know how you do anything is how you do everything i bet you can sure. tell a lot about somebody how they show up in a gym i can yeah. and uh, and so for me the ability to handle uncertainty is the primary skill that differentiates entrepreneurs why because most people are addicted to certainty most people you know are uh, are driven again by what i call goop you know swimming in goop g-o-o-p the good opinion of other people <laughs> And yeah, it's a nasty substance to swim in. It stinks, and it's yeah. Most people don't spend their entire life in it, so there's no authenticity. So what? So what you're talking about is uh, people base their value off of uh, other people's perception of them or their judgment all, all, all the time. Yeah, everything and perception and judgment the same thing at that point because yeah. it's, it's it's your reality. But again, it, it tracks back. Yeah, but so it, isn't that self-defeating? Because how can I? I mean, it I would be for you. Well, yeah. I mean, like a, you know, what, I mean, if I based. Uh, my self-worth on, on whether or not I thought that you liked me, mm -hmm. then I think, God, that would be uh, 
fuck, that would not only be time consuming, but then how would I ever really get to be who I am? Wouldn't you I just not can't. say anything until I figure out like, oh, this is who he is and people like themselves. So then I just got to kind of morph myself into somebody that you would like. And you'd be amazed how many millions and tens of millions of people live their life like that every day unconsciously. Oh, and fuck, dude. I, that and gives I, me anxiety and I don't have anxiety. It makes well, me want to throw up. <laughs> well, let, let me let me give the listeners here a, a way out of that because it is such a, a prevalent cancer of the mind in, in society today. And, you know, I, I'll use an analogy because people can relate to that. So let's call it um, everybody stars in the movie called the movie of their life. Everyone can relate to that. Yeah, I know that because you know, we all, we're in every single scene, but we're in our own movie. Now, by definition of you starring in the movie of your life, the other people that come into the scenes in your movie will only have one of two main roles. Very, very few will be a supporting cast, you know, spouse, kids, boss, you know, brother, whatever. 99% plus of the people that ever come into the movie of your life are going to be film extras. Now, the challenge is that because we see ourselves as the star of the movie of our life, we make the misperception that everybody else sees us as the star of the movie of our life. And the reality is that they're starring in a movie called Their Life, which means by the very definition, we're at best a supporting cast, but 99% of the time, we're nothing more than a film extra in other people's movies. So when we're driven by the good opinion of others because we think we have to show up as this you know, star of our movie and people need to see us this way, then what we forget is you know, the golden rule that gets you out of goop if you're open enough to internalize this is most people don't care enough about you to bother to give an opinion because they're too busy being worried about what they think you're thinking of them. And when you understand that realization, you can give up the game. You can stop being this chameleon through life saying, well, if they don't like me this way, I'll be that way. If they don't like me, I'll be this well, way. Uh, but uh, doesn't that go with like the idea of um, uh, I would, and th this is maybe just my own personal deal, but I'd rather have uh, somebody have a fixed, like not a fix, but a, a very definite uh, uh, feeling. Like for me, like if they meet me, like I've never had anybody be like, eh, I don't know, I didn't really think about it. Like, I, I would like to have somebody be like, oh, what would you think of that guy? Uh, I thought he was a fucking asshole. Or uh, I really liked him. He was uh, this. I mean, like, I, I want to have, uh, at least when I meet people, I would like for their perception of me to be somewhat passionate, whether it be good or bad. If I'm just, and, uh, I, and you'll, you'll know this, the analogy milk toast, which is what my mom always said. My mom was raised in Canada, you know, English kind of deal. And, like, milk toast was, like, the world's worst thing to be. Like, you don't want to be milk toast. You don't want to have everybody just mm -hmm. have this kind of, like, eh, he, you know, kind of, like, just... Uh, very, uh, uh, I didn't even notice him. He was just an extra in my movie. I would always wanted people to be somewhat passionate, whether or not it be good or bad. So aren't you searching for their their opinion, man? It's not like, really. I want them to think I'm no, no. I mean, not that at all. I'm not wanting to be passionate, but I hope that I make enough of an impression on somebody that they have a definitive, uh, you know, perception of me. That I've 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 been honest enough with who I am that they. Have a, can actually make an accurate assessment. You, you nailed the word there, John. This yeah. is how it ties in together. You know, people remember people who are authentic. You know, people have a sense, an inbuilt sort of sense of, of like a bullshit meter. And you know, if you are showing up, most people are showing up with so much, uh, uh, such a high level of, of being disingenuous, uh, not because they're bad people, it's just because they're trying to adapt to get you know, approval. You know, or validation or acceptance or significance or certainty or whatever it is. And so you know, who are the people that you remember that you want to look up to? The people that will let go of that, that have yeah. come from a place of freedom, that aren't trying to you know, be apologetic or you know, impose their self on there because they're trying to do force instead of just, showing up. Just be a real person. A real person. Yeah, and I, I made that point that I think the world goes through what I call cartoon characters, hmm. that, that the world is morphed into. Because you know, if you watch cartoons, they're very one-dimensional. Like, 
people don't evolve as a cartoon. Like if, uh, so with my, my kids watch cartoons, if we're watching like uh, uh, their favorite show is uh, Princess Elena of Avalor, so we'll sit down and I, um, I always want to watch what they're watching just so that I have a basis to kind of joke with them. Hmm. And so, because uh, I think it's funny to like. Sure, uh, that's why you yeah. Yeah, it, It's true. <laughs> but uh, Ted, Tex has heard me like argue with them. I'll be like, uh, and I tell them all the time, they were like, oh, we watched the show. I'm like, oh, what happened? Oh, no, I already saw that one. When you guys go to bed, I watch all your Princess Elena shows. And so I'll go watch, as I'm watching them, I'll be like, oh, that was the one with Zuzo and this. And they'll be like, he watched all of our shows and they get upset. And it's my way of like teasing them. But I think uh, uh, the majority of people go through this one-dimensional cartoon deal, and I'm like, be a real person. And I can think of all of the people that I've met that uh, really when I leave and I'm like, wow, that was a, a really rich experience for me, are people that are very you know, multidimensional, that are reflective, that have something to say and have done something that uh, is, is of note worth. Mm -hmm. um, I meet people all the time that uh, pander to, to me. Like you go out and you meet and they're like, oh, they, they kind of like pander, and I'm always like, dude, Hey man, uh, I'm not, you know, like whether or not you think that I like you or I like you is, is completely inconsequential. What I'm interested in is like who you are as a person, uh, not for a connection, just because I'm generally fascinated by what make people tick, like how they go about things. Hmm. That's why you can, you can like people who are really authentic, even if they're a total shit show, right? Like I, I had this, you know, this friend, like she's just a fucking train wreck, man. She's an alcoholic. Her life's always, I mean, just you know, just a shit show, but she's completely unapologetically herself and she just fucking shows up like completely, oh, I'm having an affair on my husband with this other guy and just like, she doesn't care. And so you got to kind of like the girl. I mean, you're like, I, you're not somebody I want to hang around with. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I like the fact I, um, that you're just authentic. Uh, you know what? And, and here, here's another thing too uh, with like, uh, uh, I always think sometimes like, the, you know, like honesty is best, but at some point when people are like honest where it's like, oh, I'm doing this and this, I'm like, ah, that's not how I live my life. Um, I, uh, you know, I mean. That's how they live their life. Yeah, so. but I mean, yeah. So I mean like, but that, but for me, um, I think, uh, you know, being, uh, how do I put this? I mean, it's rare to like have lots of words. Like I think that um, uh, like a big part of life is respect. Like not respect for yourself, but respect for those around you. Like, hey, if I respect my wife enough or my kids or that to be the best person I can in personal growth. And like, uh, you know, like, like I said, our two, we have three rules of power athlete. Don't steal, which is pretty easy. Uh, do what you say you're gonna do and don't be a piece of shit. Like, and I think like for me, especially man, like, um, I watched a lot of guys in the NFL have these like multiple kind of like multiple lives and this, and they had wives and kids, but they had girlfriends and they lived this like completely fucking out of bounds deal. And, uh, I remember one of the guys, I'm like, this sounds like a lot of work, dude. Hmm. Like, why not just be honest? So like forever you're trying to remember your lies. I'm like, I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to have to wake up and ever feel like I have to continue to play some role because then how do you ever know who you are? And so, like, I think for a lot of stuff, I mean, like, like you said, like that honesty, whether it's good and bad is so good because I think people are so afraid of like actually turning that mirror and that perception on. And I'm sure you see that too, man. Like people are so afraid when they turn that mirror, like, what if I don't see what I like? Can I make that change? Yeah. And a, a big challenge is that most people are, they're, they're running, they're trying to get fulfillment. Yeah, there's something missing. It's empty because, you know, being disingenuous isn't part of, uh, of the natural human expression in terms of what makes us grow. But... Most people are, are trying to, they're running on the track of achievement trying to catch the rabbit of fulfillment. And the two are mutually exclusive. Uh, if, if you come to a place of you know, understanding congruently that you were born good enough, 
that you already are that which you seek. You haven't got to try to prove it. You can then take the pressure off that's driving you from a, a place of, oh, now I'm a piece of shit, I've got to go do something, or I need validation. No. Now, what, what, you take a greyhound that's chasing a rabbit on mm -hmm. a track. You know, it's never going to catch the rabbit, right? It's yeah. a mechanical rabbit. But if they do catch the rabbit, you know what happens? <laughs> They'll get electrocuted. Probably. No, they never run again. Oh, well, they, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they if, go, if, right? if they catch the rabbit, yeah. They'll never yeah, yeah, run yeah, yeah, again, yeah. Yeah, which I, I think is by far like the most interesting <laughs> fucking analogy for life that when the greyhounds get out there and they run, if they ever so catch the, the guy who is operating the rabbit and fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what kind of insurance? Well, that guy so have? so the way that they figure that out is that the electricity went out and the rabbit stopped and they caught the rabbit and those dogs never ran again. Wow. And so I always think like, fuck, man, that's such an interesting mm. situation because you think like, uh, uh like in, and this is um, maybe like a self-fulfillment. I'm sure, Doc, you've been through the same thing. Like people get stuck into this idea of like, if I can just make this happen, no. then it's, I'll be fulfilled. Yeah. I need to do Never this. And like uh, uh, people ask her like, um, you know, and I had somebody be like, hey, you know, uh, you, know you guys are doing a bunch of online stuff. Everything's going really well. Like, uh, you know, is that enough? And I'm like, um no, like it was never the goal. Uh, the goal was to try to influence people the most that we could through the through the medium we're using. So I looked at it like uh, I have two kind of modes. I can throw like little pebbles. I can throw like hundreds of little pebbles in the pond to kind of make big ripples. Or I can like, and I'll just keep throwing the bigger ones or little ones until I get to the big ones because I know at some point I'm going to reach back and it's going to be a big rock and I'm going to be able to throw it and it's going to make a huge splash. But I have to be prepared for that big rock by throwing all the little rocks. Hmm. And I, I think think about um, what I was most sad about when I kind of clicked on the internet, when I kind of pulled myself out of the bubble of the NFL, I was just, and I'm sure you guys did the same thing, like how much bullshit was out there yeah. and how much uh, people were using fear, manipulation and this and validation and all these things to literally separate people from I mean, really their, their money in their pocketbook and using all these things. And I'm like, dude, there's so much mis misinformation out there. Absolutely, especially that, in health and, and exercise. Yeah, I mean- Too many commercial agendas. I mean, I always laugh when Doc Parsi uh, was on our podcast, I think, or when you gave a, gave a spot talk for us where you were talking about your TED talk had like five or 6,000 views at the time. And you were saying like the guy who did origami had like a million views. Yeah. And you're like, so more people are interested in how to do origami than they are about sleep and health. Yeah. And I remember telling him, I'm like, but you're trying to, and this is, um, Yours is non, not non, or is, is what a non-crazy person would do. You need to sleep more, right? Because it's this like, uh, you know, extremely complex thing and like this, whereas the, the, the guy who's, you know, making millions of dollars, a guy like, uh, you know, our Bulletproof exec guy who it's like, oh, you just need to do 45 minute naps and drink Bulletproof coffee and you can sleep four hours a night in this and people are like, oh yeah, that sounds way better. Yeah. You know, I can hack into this thing and I'm like. You're telling me what I want to hear. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that. Like, yeah, but, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I'll listen. As long but as but why they want to hear it? The, the reason they want to hear it is because it matches the model of, oh, teach me how to run fast around this track to catch this rabbit so that I can validate myself. Uh, don't, and because they're still being driven by a need to prove, a need to validate, a need to get accepted, a need to try and you know, avoid the fear that they're not enough. So that, that being a focus, it's like, well, you know, I haven't got enough hours to be able to make that happen, so teach me how to sleep less. See, that, that's so contrary. Like, for example, uh, uh, I was talking about beds and some sleep stuff with Doc Parsley, mm -hmm. and he made the observation that if the room's too warm, uh, you won't sleep well. 
And I remember, and then I was telling him I sleep on a Tempur-Pedic and he's like, oh, it's too hot. So then uh, I like went out there and I researched and there's that chili pad thing. And it's like, a, it's a mattress pad that goes underneath the sheets and it cools the bed down to a certain temperature. And uh, I was like, I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, we got to make a change. So I bought, I was going to buy one for myself, but I knew if I bought it for myself and not for my wife, she would be sleeping on my side and then I would never sleep. So I got one and uh, literally I set it up and he's like, oh, you got to sleep at 64 degrees. The problem is I've been waking up and it's like 74 because I heat the thing up so much so now I've got to turn down to 50 yeah. and it's literally running out of water like every day and I'm battling this thing but I'm like dude you have to be able to see what's happening and be able to make life tweaks yep. or take somebody's information instead of me just being like well let's turn the AC up and being like ah but the, that's not going to cool the bed and I think for a lot of people um they're in this, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I always think about growth mindset. Like, I always want to surround myself with people that uh, force me to think more and be better and bring in new information, which continues to allow me to sharpen my blade. Like, that's what I love about Tate. Uh, Tate is uh, one of those people where he is so reflective that it actually reminds me to uh, not be so reflective. Like, I'm like, Tate, man, like, like, it's like be exhausting, dude. Just dude, it, turn it, left. it, it is. <laughs> right. Choice, so I, I tell Tate, I'm like, Tate, honestly, I love talking to you because it constantly reminds me just to fucking go. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, he, he literally laughs and I'm like, dude, I, I, I love being around that guy because he takes things down to such a micro level that I fucking love it. And I'm like, dude, this level of minutia to me is, uh, I mean, we could get into it all day, but we wouldn't get anything done. Let's mm. just fucking can put our foot on the accelerator masturbation dude. it is and uh dude but for him i think he was the fucking foot on the accelerator guy oh, and long. now oh forever i yeah. mean dude he just he it, still is really. yeah i mean just a reflective he, version. he has to fight between uh uh this like he has like a darkness inside of him and a light yeah. and he's in this forever kind of star wars the force kind of dark side thing he lets and, tate out of the cage oh, now dude. and then but he's trying to hold him in well I, I i keep saying that tate's dark side is when uh la basically you know there's a huge earthquake san andreas fall then it turns into you know escape from la and yeah. tate becomes the warlord of california and he's yeah. going to be sitting up on his throne of skulls yeah. and you know what he'll finally be like oh, finally <sighs> i found my place and it's on a throne of skulls and like dude that, like two dude, minutes uh, dude i love that <laughs> and, and then he'll be like oh, i don't know but like uh, so that idea of uh of people like you know searching in this i mean is there ever a point where like people you know the uh uh paralysis through uh, analysis kind absolutely. of deal. Uh, absolutely. And again, the, the, the antithesis of that is coming from a place of you know, congruently, not at intellectual level, even emotional level, but if you can come from a place of knowing that I already am that which I seek, then your motivation for what you do changes, which means, you know, you go back to the greyhounds. You, know, you don't get a greyhound at the end of the race saying, you know, something, I three races this week. I still haven't caught the rabbit. I quit. Yeah. No, greyhounds love to run. You see them at the end of the race. They are jazzed. Yeah. You know, entrepreneurs build businesses because that's what we do. And as a result of that, you know, we, we go out and we win. We fail. We give it our best shot. We squeeze every drop. We swing the bat. But to go out there because I need to have a business so that I can prove to the world I'm good enough or you know, I'm better than my brother or my business teacher who said I was a piece of shit or whatever it is, you know, it's motivating, but it's internally unfulfilling, exhausting, and aging. Mm. And so you know, there's a level of freedom of expression that comes from you know, the emotional maturity of understanding that you know, I already am, which I say I've got nothing to prove, so let me go give my gift to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think I see you come from, John, a lot, because you're, you're not trying to prove anything here. You've you found that level of... Uh, of um, 
uh, inspiration that that really drives you because you're here to serve. It's bigger than you. It's no longer about you. Well, and that's that, why the company's been called John Wellborn Fit, and it's yeah. uh, you know people ask me they're like you know you should put yourself more front and center, and I do, but for the most part I'm like dude, it's based on this model of the power athlete. And when I talk about it, and it was hilarious when I first started talking about this, I always talked about we, and then somebody was like, who's the we? I'm like, well, it's the royal we. It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's all me. of us. It's, it's all of us. Yeah. But I was like, I use this we in uh, in kind of an interesting way, in that I I just stand on the shoulders of giants. Hmm. Like I think about being 14 years old and walking into George Zangus, who's the old powerlifter that trains me, and um, you know I stand on you know who's not, you know George has since passed, and uh, I stand on the shoulders of what he taught me, and I'm the first one to pay attribution and be like, I didn't create this stuff uh, <laughs> as a 14 year old kid listening to this old man talk, and then being able to go and work with all these great coaches and being analytical enough and um, had enough desire to basically just like, uh, you know, crack the bone. And um, it's funny, we talked about movies, but uh, Dead Poet Society, which was one of my favorites with Me Robin too. Williams, um, when they asked him to define what a dead poet was, he said somebody that cracked the bone and sucked the marrow out of life. And I always wanted like power athlete and the people that worked with us and be around us. Uh, I wanted that analogy of cracking the bone and sucking the marrow that it just wasn't okay just to eat the meat. You had to be able to take it down to that piece and suck every piece of that out. And um, that for me is um, what I want to do. And it's like, I think uh, people learn and they help and they, in different ways. You know, you're trying to you know help people uh, understand how to be a better version of themselves by you know empowering them. And like you have all the tools, you are the person that you know nobody can make you uh, you know who you are. You have to understand who you are inside and pull that out because you are good enough to be able to do these things. Like no external validation is going to get you anywhere uh, better than what you can get from yourself. Is really just and not to boil it down. That's how I take it, and that's a great piece. I mean, it's like uh, just like training. Uh, no Nobody's going to go in there and do the work for you. Yeah. I can't proxy those weights for you. Like we were working on your squats today, flipping. I couldn't flip that for you. And when I went and I was nervous when you got it up, I didn't want you to drop it. So I went and you were like, no, don't help me. I was like, but like my thing is I want to like, I just don't want people to fail. And I, yeah. and, and I like, if I can do anything, whether it's, um, motivational put a hand stand there whatever you think if me standing there and you thinking that i'm going to touch it is your motivation for getting it then i'll stand there right and so like that's why i kind of stand there and i go to touch it because then i, I want to hear people be like no i got this i'm like i know you got it like whatever forces you if i got to stand back there and scream and shoot arrows at you or set you on fire <laughs> like however it works yeah, that, that man, wouldn't have done it no yeah. but <laughs> but that isn't who you, I know are. you mean. I but know. but for parsley if, if he was there i would have stand back there and just belittled him because i know that's you know that's what his motivation is to like be like uh, i know you're telling me i'm not good enough go fuck yourself because not only am i going to flip it i'm gonna flip it down and break it on the way down because that's that's yeah. the culture he works in um and I think being able to, and, and I, I remember in fifth grade, uh, I had to do a report on Douglas MacArthur. And uh, we had to dress up like the person we gave the report. And I wrote this pretty extensive thing. My dad uh, actually wrote me out this poem uh, by MacArthur, which was like, um, you know, build me a son. And I remember uh, reading that with my dad and then going on and uh, talking to my dad about the MacArthur thing. And then uh, I got to dress up as MacArthur and I ended up winning an award and had to get up and read this thing, this poem, uh, Build Me a Son. And I just remember the piece from MacArthur was, um, as a general, you have to find the motivation to lead each individual person, mm. that nobody motivates everybody the same. So like, you know, some people you got to kick, some people you, you got to coddle, some people you have to do this and this. And finding those motivations for each person is really how you define a leader. Now at the time, 
time, it was very favorable to MacArthur. And since then, as I went back and looked at it, he was kind of a piece of shit in a lot of ways. Uh, but in fifth grade, I didn't really necessarily know that. And I just read the you know Encyclopedia Britannica or what my dad had told me because there was no internet. So I just knew the kind of the, the grandiose version of this stuff. And it wasn't until I, you know, got in and really researched it, you realize all the kind of the shortcomings of it. But, uh, uh, but the idea of um, helping people get better um, and the medium I use is through performance training because I'm going to empower you with this information. You're going to do this. You're going to make a life change. You're going to see it. And if, if you're able to harness and do this, then I believe that empowers you to, to become a better person. And like Tate kept saying it, man, have a fucking standard. And he kept saying it, and I, uh, I, I love that statement because nobody has a standard. Like, nobody's ever sat back and been like, what's my standard to know whether or not I'm good enough? Like, well, like, and, and I think if you, you know... Well, what, most people's standards are bullshit. They're, they're something out there, right? It's how many like, followers how I have many, on Instagram, how many, right? How many millions uh, of dollars. How many I millions of dollars I have? Yeah, what's like, my body fat? You know, how does this? What does my wife look like? The, uh, the, most, the, most famous, or the most common quote at my house is, there's no out there out there. Right. Mm. Everybody's looking for something else. There's no fucking out there. It's right there. here. Everything is in here. Yeah. All you're just perceiving all that shit, man. Without your perception, it doesn't fucking exist, right? It's not out there. Everything has to be in here. You got to fix what's in here, man. So what's cool is uh, when we talk about the life change piece, we look at it from like if I can develop the physical then I can kind of sneak in on the backside. Whereas you're, you know, that's why I, I, that's why I love it. And I think it's, it's so amazing that when you meet people that are looking like docs, like, Hey man, I want to make you, you know, I want to dial you in optimally, you know? And like, I, I ask them questions and, um, I try to implement, like when we talk, I try to implement one thing. Like if it's more sleep, okay. If it's cool to bed, let's do that. And as I do one, I try to get to the next one so I can implement these. Cause I think when you give to people too much, yeah. So like in our programs, I'll introduce one new movement that's built upon another and be like, okay, hey, this is something you guys have developed a skill set. Now we're going to progress this one. Yeah. And like same thing for you, man, like that same piece. But uh, um, usually the emotional route there is overwhelm leads to confusion, which leads to inaction. So people are desperately trying to think that by getting skills, they'll replace certainty. And they don't know. They'll just have more skills and still be uncertain. But if you have a, um, as I say, if you have a, uh, a pathway where it's incremental at a time and you can sort of get validation and build on that, uh, then, you know, as Bruce Lee, you know, famous quote, yeah. you know, long-term uh, consistency beats short-term intensity. And Well, yeah. our, our favorite one is uh, uh, the, basically the empty your cup. You know, like, uh, you know, like water fills the cup, but like, you, you know, we run and learn what you have learned. Yeah. And, you know, when people come in, like, yeah, there's a Bruce Lee quote, oh, which, is, which is in our book. Here, let me read. Is, and this is, sits in our book, is knowing it's not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. And that idea of like empty the cup, because we run into people all the time that come to the seminar that know everything. And I'm like, why are you here if you know everything? Like, you have to go outside, and I, I'll give them the metaphor, go outside, empty your cup, and come in and let us fill it up. You might take a sip and say, this isn't for me, pour it out, and you can pour your own brand back in. But at the end of the day, if your cup is always full, you can't learn, you can't learn anything. But um, before, we've been rapping, but uh, I'm super fascinated to hear about your book. I mean, we were talking a little bit about it on the Hill and even earlier here. Uh, I think people would uh, um, just really be amazed by, you know, by the book. And uh, I, I have not read it, so I'm excited to read it. But can you, we talk a little bit about the book? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, it's really a how-to manual for, for dealing and conquering adversity because uh, going back to the metaphor of being in earth school, you know, we have what I call graduation events. 
and these are usually you know, tests to see if we are at an emotional level or of maturity to pass you know, the grade that we're currently at in Earth School. And if not, we tend to resit that exam. And this happens in all of the different areas of our life. You know, it could be healthy. It might be your second mild heart attack and you're just not listening. Yeah, it could be your third failed marriage and you know, you're not listening. So, you know, you Was think that a dig at anybody in particular? <laughs> no. <laughs> no comment, no. Uh, only two. We have these graduation events, and for me, you know, I, I had a graduation event last year, and uh, I was arguing uh, the uh, in court on a civil matter you know, over a business deal that was done a few years back. You know, typical what I thought, you know, sort of commercial bullshit, and uh, and I found myself um, ending up or landing myself in, in contempt of court. Didn't see it coming, uh, completely unexpected, and as a as a you know, non-criminal, uh, ended up uh, being put in in Britain's toughest jail. How does that happen? It's a weird thing in England that you know I guess just happens. But I I felt that wow. I mean the, the yeah, genius. but I mean why would they uh, for a white-collared contempt to put you in a a you know basically felons and like violent criminals? Oh yeah, and terrorists and murderers and rapists and and it was you know it was a full-on yeah you know, sec- you know, secure high security jail, and uh, I should have probably been there a it's week like before. Same. Quentin of the UK. Yeah, no, I mean, dude, that's yeah. bullshit. Full on. And I, I should have probably been there for about a week before being categorized into like an, an open you know, uh, jail, for example, but it took four and a half months. And, you know, there's a reason for that. I, I, I should have, I needed to be there in for, for many reasons. One, uh, learn a little bit about what my, what my ego was doing in court. You know, I was there to prove that I was right rather than you know, explain to the court why they tried to trip me up over a freezing order and all this kind of crap. Yeah, but that, beside that. Isn't it amazing how times uh, being right fucks you in the end? <laughs> Uh, I can tell you how many times, how, uh, like, I, uh, yeah. being right is the most expensive it's currency. It's the booby prize of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, fucking, uh, yeah. I, mm. I'm sure, Doc, you know the same thing. It's like being right, uh, way too expensive for me. Yeah. But I, I remember when uh, when it looked as if it was going the wrong way, because, you know, they had far more expensive lawyers. I mean, it was Hewlett Packard. I mean, they, they you know, had a $100 million law firm, and uh, and I had nothing, right? Uh, so, And I remember turning around to my fiance Thea, and, and I'm like, honey, this, this could actually go the wrong way. I mean, it was out of the left field. And she says, well, what happens if you go away? And I, I sat and I thought about it, and I turned around and I says, look, you know, I'm very blessed that uh, I've had my work impact, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. But there's probably people that could really benefit that may never get to see it. And in a place like that. So if life wants to send me in there to be able to go do my work, I'm like, honey, let me go. Let me go do it. And I went in, I never went in, we talk about identity, not for one second did I have the identity of being a prisoner. I had the identity of, I was a secret agent of positive change. And you know, I went in and you know, created, did, did what, you know, did what I do. You know, if, if I went in, if you went in there for for whatever reason, you know, life decided that that was a your graduation event. You know, you'd be teaching the guys, you know, power moves, right? How to how to be more functional. Something I was doing actually in there because everyone was doing t-shirt training, right? Yeah. There, there's no you know trunk strength being built. So yeah, you know, but I went in and yeah, you know, over that period of time, I you know, I helped you know make a, a big transformation in, in a lot of people's lives. Very, very blessed, very grateful to have that opportunity. It's still one of the best, most incredible, inspiring adventures I've ever had. And yeah, I won national award while I was in there for what I was doing. I, I got letters of commendation from the governors and the guards and the officers and the prisoners and and been able to create something that came out that is, is making a lasting change. But I, when I went in, because it was so out of left field and I was the only non-criminal in the whole jail, but I was treated exactly the same. There was no differentiation between that. But I went in, I was halfway through you know, some of my coaching programs. So I said to my, my coaching clients, my coaching groups, I said, look, this is an opportunity for me to be able to demonstrate what I've been teaching you, you know, without the cameras, the second takes, you know, all the bullshit, you know, it's real life stuff. Sure. I said, so I'm, I, I wrote a letter every two weeks 
to my coaching groups detailing not only what I was doing and how I was doing it, but the techniques, the tools. You know, how can I walk in genuinely smiling into a situation like that where I'm, I'm losing everything, my business, potentially, potentially my home, whether I'm going to see my relationship again, if it's going to survive, all of this stuff that's going on, and my reputation, all, all of this thing. And, you know, so uh, every two weeks I wrote a letter. I called it the inside track. And over that period of time, there's 11 letters that I wrote, and the book is the actual compilation of the 11 letters, uh, so you can track the journey in real time as to what happened. It's a very unique book, and I remember rereading it when I came out, and the people turn around and say, hey, Pete, you, you know, this, isn't, this can't just be for us, because it's changed our lives, but you have to give this to the world. So, you know, the book's out in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited. You can oh, actually awesome. download the first chapter for free off my website, um, uh, petersage.com. So come to prison on. was just a publicity stunt. Mm. I, I, it, was, it was ingeniously uh, Send me engineered. to prison. Send me to prison. <laughs> send me to the worst place. No, man, it's uh, uh, prison's an awful place. Um, you know, like I said, my dad and my brother are both the defense attorneys, and I remember my dad telling me uh, prison is uh, not a place for, for, for people. I had no idea. I mean, you, you see stuff on TV and things, but I, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, it was just so alien to the world I'd been in and, and trial by fire. And, and that's why I designed, I mean, I wrote a, a, a short story in there called Mud or Stars uh, after, you know, the old adage, two men sat behind prison bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. And it's, it's how you shift your relationship to the event. And and that was, uh, that won the, the, the award because it got so many people off antidepressants. Mm. It's only a short story. Uh, and part of that is because you can't, as I said earlier, you can't tell people what to do, but you can enroll them sure and so you know you, you the, the story is about two guys you know a guy comes to prison as a, a first time and he's deer in the headlights and he's sitting in the sort of processing room and he happens to sit next to an old sort of wise mentor uh, and kicks back a little bit but it's that conversation that they have that then people are listening to while they're reading thinking oh wow that's actually pretty good yeah oh wow I never thought of it that way and give them and empower them with the tools to make a better changes not just in there but for life and and so yeah I and mean, that was just one of, of many things that I, I was I was doing but probably say one of the most incredible inspiring adventures wouldn't swap a second wow dude that's uh well i mean personal growth i mm -hmm. mean you know and um you know and i'm sure just like everything i mean the uh you know such an awful fucking place to have to go and do this but then to be able to make a positive out of it is is you know really just a secret of life because i mean adversity comes like i mean it, that's probably like the we're in earth school uh, expect yeah. an exam yeah like yeah i mean uh, i yeah i mean the uh, uh whoever thought that this thing was going to be easy and and trouble free and you know hey like everything was going to go and i'm like dude we don't grow like that man and and i think the minute that you remove or people fight to remove stress stress becomes by far their biggest factor because they haven't really prepared for it yeah like i mean i i don't know anybody that's just kind of lived this uh kind of i mean utopian it, type life it doesn't, doesn't happen well like the forrest gump Right, like where <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of like, uh, you know, I decided to run and I ran. Like, and I always think, like, um, on the contrary, we were talking about Tate, but I remember thinking, like, Forrest Gump lived a pretty good life. Wasn't a smart man, and he just kind of went and just kind of just did that stuff. And, like, there was no stress in his life. He just kind of everything kind of evolved. And I'm like, as authentic as they get, right? Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but you think about, like, who, who just has that kind of just. I'm just going to go, you know, follow the flower or follow the feather and just go. And it's like, that's, that's never going to happen in a utopia, in a, this, I mean, there's no utopian yeah. society. The, the river of life winds. Yeah. There's no straight lines in nature. You see a yeah. straight line, it's man-made and most people, they resist the bends. It's like, okay, my left brain, I've been taught everything's in straight lines, you know, fastest route from A to B, uh, which it isn't, you know, try driving to work in a straight line. It's not the fastest route. You know, it's maybe the shortest on paper, but you know, if you, 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 you're heading South because you've got your plan and your goal South and you're sailing down the river South and all of a sudden, guess what? There's a bend. There's a left bend so what do people do they get a shovel and start digging a channel straight through the bank to try to you know continue and they, they resist life rather they than, than flow 
And there's a big difference between you know, resisting the current, which is what most people do, spending their life swimming upstream, trying to force the world to fit their pictures, and positioning yourself more intelligently in the current. You, know, you can't fight the current. Well, I mean, as Doc, uh, how do you get out of a riptide? You know, everybody swims against a riptide, and what do they do? They just tire themselves out and they drown. Yeah, you just, just got to swim relax, out with it. Relax and let happen. Yeah, just, yeah. just, just swim out, and you got to swim. Until it's gone. Until it's gone, then you swim out. Yeah. Yeah. This goes into your, your speech. I took notes. I was in the back hanging out in the kitchen <laughs> taking notes. But uh, And you talked about four levels of consciousness, to me, by me, and then through me, mm. which is what you're describing. Is that Correct. is this idea, this these concepts in the book as well? Uh You'll have the, the philosophy around, yes, I, I break down the, the primary distinction between the first three. The, the, the highest level of ASME is really about you know, spiritual oneness, et cetera, which very few of us ever aspire to. In fact, that's graduation of Earth School. You don't need to come back after that. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but yes, most people are in, in what I call the victim mode mentality of life, which is you know, the to me. You know, I would have the life of my dreams. I would show up to the gym and train, but you know, everything happens to me. Yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's complete victim. Then you transition out of that from a level of emotional maturity into by me. You know, I realize that you know, looking at the weights isn't going to you know, lose the weight on, on my waistline. So therefore, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen by me. So you, know, you go from the victim into the achiever. Uh, it is exhausting. You know, a lot of people swim upstream on, on that, they're trying to fit life's pictures uh, and bend reality into shape. You know, I gave up fighting reality a long time ago. You know, Forrest Gump had the right deal. You know, why did I give up fighting reality? The son of a bitch kept winning. Yeah, so there is a le there is a level of through me whereby you you are you realize that you know I cannot change what has happened. Resistance is futile. I think was a quote from the Borg. Right? But yeah, <laughs> yeah, resistance is futile. If you're resisting what has already happened, you are wasting energy. Right? If the milk is spilt, the milk spilt. Right? Bitching about it, complaining about it, and using it to reinforce your story why you're a victim for the next 30 years because she left you, right, is not going to help. Right? Using the energy or coming to a place of acceptance so that you can free up the energy of resistance and use that to make a better, more intelligent decision on how to deal with the fact that milk is spilled is far more empowering. And most people cling to their victim story or they wear themselves out in, in by me. Why is that? I mean, is it, uh, it I mean, there has to be some form of social construct, whether it be emotional, physical, chemical, whatever it is, for people to favor the victim. Because, I mean, Very dude, simple. we see, like, uh, like the, the world is victim. I mean, the world is packed with victims. Very simple. Right, the, the, the defining level of emotional maturity begins at the level of courage. Courage means you have to be vulnerable. Courage means you have to put yourself in a place where you can trigger that fear that you're not good enough. And so it's far easier to hide out be beneath that level. And you know, it takes courage. And I'm not talking about courage about walking into a bar and, and taking on three guys bigger than you. I mean, you know, a lot of the time courage is required to, to you know, mend a broken relationship. You don't want to have to because you don't want to say sorry. Yeah, or you know, to be able to be vulnerable enough to, to step up and, and put yourself out and, and you know, make the phone call that you're, you're scared of making you know, or start the business that you want to start. I talked to, uh, I've, well, my advice to Luke, uh, I remember um, I was like, you know, uh, I'm real good on like, uh, you know, not necessarily unsolicited advice, but like, you know, like, hey, man, you're, you're getting married. And like, even though you've been together with your girl for you know, a long time, like I think and my dad actually told me this little piece like he's like uh, and I find it ironic because I never heard him apologize. But uh, he said he's like, you know, sometimes uh, an apology, whether or not it is, um, you know, you feel like, you, you know, you're sorry or whether or not you were in the wrong, like being married, sometimes just saying sorry 
helps things get along. And remember, at the end of the day, like the, the goal is to keep moving forward and soldiering on. And the problem is, is like, you know, people let these small things become like a massive fucking divide. And he goes, if it's just basically saying, sorry, you're right, or that's a great idea, we should move in that direction, even though you don't think so, just to keep things moving. Because the minute that like, you know, in the march, if like, you know, the horse loses a shoe and can't continue to walk, like at the yeah. end of the day, you need to keep moving forward. And like, you have to do everything he said as a father and as, you know, in a, in a um, you know, having a family, you have to constantly moving forward. And if it's saying sorry, or maybe, you know, putting your wants or desires behind because this is moving in the in the general direction 100%. he's like you got to shelve those things and you got to say sorry so i was like don't ever be afraid to say sorry like don't ever like uh even if you don't think that you were wrong do you want to be right do you want to be happy yeah you that's know? that's basically yeah. it yeah but one of the other reasons that or primary reasons that most people have this victim sort of uh, mentality is because they don't have a const uh, you know a context for understanding life you know, for example when i said about earth school now if you if you go to normal school and that we, we you know we all have a context for you know why you're there if they said, listen, you don't have to show up for school, you don't have to you know, take the exams, it's okay, we've changed everything. Uh, oh, by the way, you also don't graduate. People are like, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm here because I wanna graduate. But you know, if, you, if you turn around and you don't have a concept for understanding what school's about, you're gonna design yourself a path of least resistance. I don't wanna go up and sit down 40 minutes and listen to a lecture, I don't wanna go and take these tests. Well, what's the point? If you don't have a concept, a context for understanding it, you try to design yourself a, a comfort zone to avoid you know, stress you don't have a context to, to you know, appreciate. So life is the same thing victim story allows me to bypass the awareness that life is a growth centric experience it allows me to resist having courage to be vulnerable to be judged to be real and sort of hide behind why i'm a victim which creates zero growth which will only attract more victimness because again yeah you fail the test you know <laughs> fifth grade what do you do you have to go back and sit the thing yeah right so that that's really why most people stay victim because it's far more comfortable and they don't realize that we're here to grow we're not here to shrink so is it uh is by providing like if like so if uh like here i'll just tell you uh, an analogy but um so my daughters just graduated from kindergarten they're going to first grade and i told them that there is a physical fitness testing that they have to test into school so they have to be able to do 10 pull-ups 10 push-ups be able to run the hill 10 times and so we go out and we train for this and i'm like dude you guys are got to do it and they're like really nervous and uh, i mean even though they can both crush it they can both they got 10 strict pull-ups they can do the push-ups they can do everything they uh they're pretty nervous and i'm like it's just like everything you got to test in what do you think you just get to show up and automatically be there you got to show like you got to be able to test you got to be physically fit enough to be able to go to school hmm. and uh they're going to show up and be like when's the test and like none of these kids <laughs> could pass it but like for me like that uh when they come home dad there's no test i'm like no it was our test like this was your you know uh, like you were strong enough physically dedicated enough to be able to pass these tests so now you can go on to the next piece Brilliant. and i think uh for a lot of these people they don't look at it like everything is i'm studying i'm working i'm doing everything so that i can be prepared for the test that's coming up sure and is it the fact that like we've gotten out to a point where we don't want to test yourselves or people don't assess everything as a test part of the avoidance of that is what people ascribe to failure uh, if I take the test and pass, uh, sorry, and I fail, then it proves I'm not good enough, rather than understand that we learn you know, far more with the answers oh. that we get wrong than we get right. I've learned more in failure than in success. Of course, yeah, and, that's, and, that's and, the game. If and, you're the smartest guy in the room, room find a smart guy in the room. Yeah. You know? Like I, I think about like uh, uh, me getting beat 
like uh like like me losing or me getting beat or or me not succeeding like uh you know some of the stuff we do here in business you know what happens if we don't succeed well you know what what we learned from this failure is going to prepare us to succeed in the next piece 100 percent. and, and that's the healthy relationship to understanding it but if you've if you've linked because you've never been taught that failure triggers the fear that i'm not enough you'll do almost anything to avoid it and most people's lives are spent trying to avoid emotions that they voted on unconsciously most of the time as being so uncomfortable that they have, they're scared to face. So they engineer their lives around it. And for some people, they're so scared not to be good enough, it motivates them to go lift weights. So they think that by being big, they'll get validated. Yeah. Uh, whereas other people say, well, no, I just want to grow because it gives me more of an expression of who I am in the world and gives me functionality to go give my gift. Yeah, same guy, same gym, same reps. But who you bring to the table, the reason for it is radically different. So, you know, and understanding that is, is a big part. But if your association to failure is, I'm a piece of shit, I'm not good enough, yeah, it may motivate you to get out of bed, but you're never going to find a finish line because you're seeking some level of external validation to cover an internal security. Now, again, you know, it's the rabbit of fulfillment on the track of achievement. Yeah. It, it's not going to happen. This goes, I guess, to self-esteem. So one thing I, I really dug, uh, book Psycho-Cybernetics, I don't know if you've read it, but... In, takeaway there was self-esteem because I was working with college athletes who had a too high self-esteem. And so I defined self well, from the book, I guess, defined self-esteem as your perception of your abilities. They had kids with too low self-esteem, but then the weight room provided a consistent identification of abilities. And it brought the too high down to the level where they became more coachable. They were able to accept guidance and advice and direction from a coach and too low it brought them up to yep. then still the level in which we can provide the direction and realize that you you are better than you believe right now. You know, you crushed that weight, you did this test, you did everything. So the weight room provide provided, I guess, from these athletes that I was identifying these self-esteem issues with outside of life, we could say, hey, this is our, our opportunity to identify who you are and gain a self-awareness. Yeah, and it, part of it's emotional maturity as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Buddha wasn't born enlightened. Yeah, it, it, it takes yeah. time. And so you know, self-esteem and ego can usually go together at a younger age because you're still trying to validate. And you know, a healthy self-esteem you know, coupled with a, a sense of you know, emotional maturity around you know, being more focused on how can I add value than rather than get, get approval or validation you know, or, or be king shit is, is a far you know, greater degree of, uh, of development. But self-esteem, I, I take healthy self-esteem and an ego over lack of self-esteem and no ego every day because you can, you, can, you, you can help people reduce the ego through humility and sometimes life will you know, very much do that for you as oh. part of your test. Isn't that, isn't that the great thing about life? Like just when you think you're fucking kicking ass, it comes in and kicks you in the balls and knocks you down. If you have internal importance, life will knock you down a peg. Yeah, so it's just but, the law of balance. But I mean, uh, but isn't that like uh, um, nobody ever writes uh, or makes a movie about the person that uh, everything worked for other than Forrest Gump. But like every great movie, there's some adversity. Like um, Hero's what, Journey. Yeah we, yeah, we talked about the four story arcs yeah. that exist. With but I mean, uh, so... Like there's certain movies that I've seen that um, I just love. Like to this day, like if they if they come on, like I'll just instantly sit down. One of them, Shawshank Redemption. I knew like, you were about to say that. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's one of those yeah. things where like regardless of where Shawshank is, I will sit and watch it to the very end. It doesn't matter if it's midnight, two in the afternoon. Yeah. If it's on, I'm like, I feel this like uh, almost like you know uh, people feel like what was it in um, the movie Mel Gibson where he's like, if I don't have a, a copy of Catcher in the Rye, I gotta go get Catcher in the Rye kind of deal. You know, like I feel like motivated. But the other one was Hidalgo was 
was the one you remember. I don't know if you ever saw that about the horse in the race. Yep. Uh, so it was a, like basically around the turn of the century, there was a cowboy American guy who uh, was a long range uh, uh, racer on this kind of paint pony, and he got um, contacted for like the hardest race in the world was some like race through the Arabian Desert, and they raced all this deal, and it was this, it's this race that's run for like thousands of years for like the it's this uh, the longest um, endurance race. And uh, it had uh, Vigo, who was a uh, Vigo Mortensen was yeah, in it. Return of the King. Yeah, the, the, the guy from uh, um, Lord, of uh, Lord of the Rings. And uh, it just, it was uh, such a cool story because uh, like the willpower of the horse, you know, like he's on there and it's like, he doesn't think he can do it. There's no water. It's this whole deal. And like basically the horse just keeps moving on and dragging him. So like all this adversity happens to him and it's, he's not good enough. And like, you shouldn't be here because it's these Arabians and the deal and runs into all this adversity. And the one thing, the horse never stopped. Like it was like, the and you know why? Because what's the horse's job? The horse's job is to run. Yeah. And that's all he knows. Like, it doesn't matter if it's water or food or, you know, bullet wood. It doesn't matter. The job's, the horse's job is to run. And when he doesn't think he can do it, what does the horse do? I remember there's, like, a scene. He's, like, there and, like, literally, like, the horse is dragging him. Like, dragging him onto it. And it, like, motivates him to get back up. And I just always, like, I remember watching it and being, like, man, if, uh, if, if people can get out of their own way and just mm. take a little bit of that like horse mentality of just being like, just fucking just keep going. And just a hundred miles an hour, just keep going, just keep going. Adversity's gonna come, but if we can just keep moving and dragging and we don't stop, and if somebody's there to push you, and it's like, you know, in life, like uh, you're not always the horse, but I think if you have horses around you, like you'll continue to push. And like, I just remember that movie to me, um, no big acclaim, no Shawshank Redemption, most people don't even know it, but I just remember thinking like the tenacity of the horse is, is what more people need. They just need yeah. to be that little paint pony that nobody told them they can do it. There's all these expensive Arabians. This like this little mixed breed paint from America isn't going to do it. And what does he do? He just fucking keeps going because all he knows is to keep moving forward. That's what he does. He's the horse. And like that movie to me, man, was just like. And I think constantly for this, uh, for my company and the people I'm around, my family, I'm like, I'm going to be the horse. Like I'm just going to keep moving. Yeah. And uh, some days, uh, you know, you're going to be tired. You're not going to want to go. But like, and my wife is the same way. My wife's the horse. She just yeah. keeps moving, keeps moving and keeps moving and I think that is infectious you, you, you sum up a, a great point there John and that is that you know, again motivation has willpower and willpower has a time limit because will, motivation is when you focus on self uh, inspiration doesn't need you know, willpower doesn't have a time limit it keeps going because it's focused on something bigger than you and I'll I'll share I know we're, we're coming to, to an end here soon but I, I want to share a, a last story with you that'll sort of man I, I, I'm, I'm a little sad uh, frankly I'd like to have you on our podcast every week I'd like yeah. to have our own podcast where we talk about this stuff because uh, <laughs> uh, just selfishly um, this podcast originally kind of started as like a way for us to kind of connect and like, you know, everybody's like, oh, you guys should have a podcast. So you have a podcast. And then I realized uh, selfishly uh, and uh, it allows me to connect with people and grow and help me sharpen my blade. And then mm -hmm. uh, what's amazing is we record it and people get to listen to it yeah. and people are like, oh, the podcast is so great and this and thank you. And I'm like, I do it selfishly for myself <laughs> because I get to connect with people like you guys and this and we get to have people on. And, um, and I found that... Uh, the more interesting people that you can find that are masters and like really like the um, just the people that are uh, like like that horse that are moving in that right mm. direction in different places, the more I can sharpen my blade around that and hear that, like hear your information, it just helps me be a better person. 
and like my my desire to continue to grow and evolve and I think at 50 years old if I'm the same person I was at 23 I've failed that I should evolve into this like you said Buddha was enlightened and I think like uh, like those monks that like meditate and they like reach nirvana and turn into light like I'm thinking like there has to be a piece where if we can have enough um, you know interesting conversations action enough stuff and continue to evolve maybe we can actually reach something where we think and we're like man I haven't figured it out but I'm better than I was yeah, and it's about being the example and the invitation, which you know, you're a great example of, uh, you know, I must admit. And, and the fine, you know, the, the lesson that, that really brought that home to me was uh, a few years ago. And I sort of, you know, share this for the athletes that are listening and, and, the, and people in the gym, because uh, it was a it was a huge lesson for me, a real turning point in my understanding of, especially as it relates to training. And I, uh, I ran a, a crazy race a few years back called the Marathon des Sables. It's a, an ultra marathon. Uh, it's a marathon, yeah, full 26.2 miles every day, back to back for seven days across the Sahara Desert. Day four is a double marathon, 52 miles. And yeah, you're running with like 20 kilos on the back and water's rationed to nine liters a day. That's for washing, cooking, hydrating, and you know, running 26 miles in 135 Fahrenheit. I just almost threw up in my mouth. Yeah, so yeah, don't, don't do it, oh. uh, is my advice there. But uh, anyway, I, I ran this thing and uh, it was I, the, the day after the... Um, uh, at the day of the double marathon, I woke up with food poisoning. I tried to save water the night before by not hydrating my food. She's cooking your food and you know, fetching firewood at the end of the race and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just, you know, I just, just, I got to the bottom of the the, the, you know, the sort of bag and it was just all this globby crap. But I, by then, you'd eat anything. You'd eat the spoon. You know, you're burning 10,000 calories a day. You're putting into, you know, I lost nearly 30 pounds in, in just over a week. And uh, I remember... I got up the next morning and my stomach's, you know, just not is doing somersaults. I'm purging out of both ends. I'm just not in front. And I've got to start at an 84-kilometer, you know, 52-mile stage. And I couldn't even lift my pack. My, my buddy picks it up, puts it on my back, and we all line up, like 600 athletes. And, you know, the gun goes off and, you know, 600 people run and I stay. And I, I've got to walk. But I, I can't be too slow because the rule is they have a camel. The camel actually walks the race. And if the camel overtakes you, you're out of the race. That's kind of their benchmark for the, yeah, the, uh, the, the medical, right? And, uh, and, of course, your feet are beat up. You know, you can hear the blood squelching around in people's shoes. And, and so I, I can't, I haven't got the stamina to run at all. So I walk and I go and my shoulders are in spasm because you know i've already run 100 plus miles at this point i've got you know got you know, cheese wire for, for a freaking rucksack and um i remember it, it was about eight o'clock that evening and it was getting dark and of course in, in the desert it's like sub-zero at night you know so you've got to run to stay warm and i've, I've covered about 30 miles i've got about another 20 miles to run through the night and my motivation's gone yeah, I've, you know, you've got the two dogs on the shoulder. You know, one says you can do it. One says, you know, what are you, the hell are you playing at? Well, you know, the you can do it dog was, do, was dog dead. Yeah, I'm shot. Yeah, it's gone. And all I can hear is the other one saying, listen, fire the flare. They give you this rocket flare to fire, which everybody hates because it weighs two pounds. But, you know, if you get bitten by a camel spider, a rattlesnake, or break your ankle or whatever, then you know, it's all open desert and boom. And I'm like, I just want to fire the flare. You know, nice warm bed, maybe a beer. You know, get me out of this damn thing. And I remember sit down, sunset's there, and I started to cry. I was done. I was I, there was nothing left and it was at that point you know life sends you some interesting messages at the you know, interesting times and I heard this noise this trudging through the sand and I looked up against the silhouette as the sun was setting and I saw these two figures going past and one was a, a, an old blind Korean guy that was tied at the wrist to his guide right? a competitor and I watched these two go and I'm like whoa you know what, what, what makes somebody who is clearly not an athlete he's a pensioner 
can't even see where to place his feet want to run one of the toughest foot races in the world. I mean, what, what motivates somebody, what inspires somebody to do that? I've, I've got to know. I'm a student of human behavior. I've, I've got to find out. Yeah, I've got to find out. I've got to catch the son of a bitch, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and so anyway, I set off and, and I caught up and I remember um, uh, learning through his interpreter, who's also his guide, that several years before that this, this guy's brother had died uh, of cancer. And every single year he ran this race to raise money for the hospice that had looked after his brother. And I thought, you know something? If ever I needed a reminder that it's not about me, you know, making it about me. Why do I want to run the race? It was ego, it was significance. It was, you know, why do you climb every, it's there. You know, I can, I can pull chicks in bars with stories of running that, you know, something. All of that got me as far as sitting on a rock crying my ass off. And this, this, this guy just motivated me. He motivated me to finish the, the stage, finish the race, and inspired yeah, and you, man. inspired me because <laughs> it, wasn't about, it wasn't about me. You know, why are we here? Why are we going to the gym? Is it to try and look good when other people who star in their own movies don't really care after the next three seconds you being in their scene? Sure. Or is it to become a better human being so you can express more of who you are to inspire the world? You know, that, that's the game. That's the game we're playing. And you can't fail at that game unless you choose to play it and not, choose not to play it. Boom. Boom. Um, uh, that's a perfect opportunity for us to stop. Uh, I feel like we could go on for hours and then, uh, uh, but yeah, that's a great point to stop. Um, thank you for listening to another premier podcast and strength, strength conditioning, but before we stop and like an idiot, uh, Peter, um, how can people connect with you? Uh, my website is petersage.com. Again, you can download the first chapter of the, the new book on there, which I, I hope is, is really a, a great how-to manual for people to help deal with some of the things in their life. It's got a lot of my philosophy and wisdom through that. I'm, I'm very proud to be able to share it. Uh, I'm all over YouTube. I've got a lot of free stuff. I try and help as many people as I can that don't have the resources to want to come and play with me at different levels. Um, so, yeah, go check me out on YouTube, petersage.com. Instagram, petersage007, right? That's it, petersage007. Oh, I like it. I like uh, and people it. say, oh, well, you look kind of look like James Bond. I says, no, there were six other people before me as well. <laughs> 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 well, you're, you're like, yeah, there were six other Peter Sage that's happened yeah. to get there. So, uh, well, uh, you know what? I'm sure the audience and the people listening are going to be uh, as enlightened as we are. And um, we'll put this in as one of our favorites. And uh, As inspired as we are? Uh, uh, or motivated? No. You know what? Uh, inspiration uh, is, is, is pretty fascinating in a lot of ways. But, like, um, I always think, like, a growth mindset. Like, um, yep. if you're in a growth mindset, like, inspiration doesn't really happen. What happens is, is, like, you know, you're not inspired to make the sword the sword's there and i just need to sharpen it i just look at opportunities like this it's just our ability to sharpen the blade so thank you very much power athlete radio thank you thank you now it's time for you to empower your performance find out more about peter sage by visiting his website you guessed it petersage.com and i know you guys are probably dying to find out what this week's reason for attending the 2018 power athlete symposium is and it is tats that's right T-A-T-S. Tatties. Tats. Tattoos. You have never seen more bad tattoos in one room. Granted, this can easily be achieved by placing Luke in any given space. And so long as his arm is in that room, that room has a bad tattoo in it. And if you can catch a glimpse of the white buffalo that is John's giant back mural tattoo, beers are on me. So don't miss out on all the tat action. Get your tickets to the 2018 Power Athlete Symposium. Until next time, bye!